Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Welcome, right, Friday right. afternoon. Check out this lineup. We've got my man, Rodrigo, we got Corey Hofstein from Newfound and um, co-hosting. And our guest this week is Chris Schindler uh, from Castlefield. Chris has been on a couple of other times, um, but it's been a while. So we're looking forward to catching up and um, obviously has been one of our more popular guests. So I um, want to welcome everyone. And um, oh, I didn't I didn't get a drink, but uh, maybe we can all raise our glass to friday afternoon it's been an interesting week you guys all raise your get glasses a drink. what's going out. on butler that's i don't know i gotta bring my be best the first game time today i've ever heard that come out of your mouth during i want to i want to say i was anything. sitting here looking at my drink thinking this looks like a lot more liquor than i actually poured it's just all the ice melted lots of ice i'm not that i was like wow that's a lot of booze uh, reminder to everybody day. to um, uh, we are live on YouTube. We're also live on Twitter. Ask questions uh, if you're interested in hearing Chris's perspective. And then Corey, Adam, me, I don't know how wh- where you're at, Chris, with your social media, but we should retweet that we are live now on our Twitter stream. Yep, All right. Exactly. On LinkedIn. Does that count? I'm gonna... <laughs> it doesn't. LinkedIn. No. <laughs> Please, God. Come on. Um, you're running a business, aren't you, in 2021? Yeah. Now, now but, that we can actually say that you are running an actual live strategy, so you're saying I, I need, I need Twitter on LinkedIn. All right. Yeah. Okay. It's a prerequisite. So, speaking of you running a live strategy and having a live hedge fund, why don't you tell us a little bit about Castlefield and um, what you do over there? Yeah. Sure. So, um, so we are a, a relative value systematic macro shop. 
And uh, it was very hard to like put yourself in a box because as you're a CTA, like, well, no, we're not a CTA, but we're not, you know, so it's, 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 you know, there's always boxes everyone tries to put you in, but we kind of go relative value, systematic macro, we're trading futures, but we really like to think that we're creating a product that's distinctly different than, I don't know, anything else we've seen out there at the moment. So we think, you know, like we're really trying to do something unique and different. Um, you know, we have about 20, 21, I guess, at the moment, independent models um, that, that are all like working together, you know, all kind of betting on the same assets to try and create some sort of a, uh, you know, ensemble approach to, uh, you know, to, to trying to predict which way markets are going to go. Uh, you know, great, great team, super excited about the team. Uh, we've been up and running for six weeks. So I'm very, very excited about how things are going. So like, I'm really happy to talk about, you know, what we're up to. Um, but yeah, it's been a, a long road. So uh, it's great to be here. Chris, we were chatting earlier about the, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Hard I, I was, I was really curious. You said you just launched six weeks ago. When did you start the process of trying to get this launched? <laughs> Oh, well, I resigned from teachers in September of 2018. And, and so uh, it's like, look, it's, it's super easy to start a hedge fund. I suggest everyone try it at least once in their life. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a tough road. And, and I think, you know, I'm going to be facetious here. I think like, you know, a private equity guy could probably leave, rent an office, I don't know, set up a computer, do a web page, and maybe buy a fax machine. I'm not sure. And then they're good to go. Uh, it is uh, systematic investing. It's, it's, uh, you know, there's a couple of years of, like I was going to say, maybe at least a year of research. There's a lot of operation systems and architecture. Uh, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of work, um, but it's, it's never dull. That's for sure. So. We were, um, we were talking in advance about the fact that it's often really hard for quants to tell their story, right? Maybe quants are not natural storytellers in, in general. Um, more sort of classically left-brained than right-brained. Um, maybe traditional discretionary managers. You can tell stories about the stocks you like, and that gives it some insight into your process and your framework. With quants, it's a little bit more ephemeral. Um, so I know you've actually given some thought to how you describe your origin story and the origin story for your strategy and how you think about it. So why don't you go for it, man? Let us hear it. All right. Okay. I mean, there's, there's a uh, hold on, Chris. There's a, there's a long do, form version, so I, I warn you about this. <laughs> before before you do, I just I want to make sure we we follow Mike's um, advice and make sure we let you know that whatever we talk about today is not advice. This is for entertainment and illustrative purposes only, and you should not act on this information in markets in any way. And with that, Chris, cool, tell cool. us your story. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and Adam, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I do think like when you when you hire a discretionary manager, um, you talk to them, you get to know them, you get to know their thought process because they describe their thought process in their investment thesis. And and, and, and I think it's it's very natural. It resonates with a lot of investors. And I think it's really really important for an, for a manager to be able to tell a good story so that the investor understands how they think. And I think like and, and like I said, in systematic investing, the story is way harder. It's way harder. And not only that. Quants are not good storytellers. Like everyone's been to that conference where some guy stands up with formulas on a PowerPoint slide talking unintelligibly. And no one has a clue what he's talking about. And I find those um, uh, really bad for the industry. So, so I, like, and I, and, like, I really think that when you, when you start to invest, you have to start with a story for yourself. Right? You have to know what you're looking for. Because there's, like, there's lots of different types of stories. There's the what am I looking for story, which is like, like a thesis that you start with. And that's very important. There's also the story of what did I find? I'd say it's a less useful story because you can, you know, you can data mine 
find some relationships, find some patterns, and then try and explain to yourself why that may have happened, which can be helpful, but can also be uh, dangerous. And then I think like where, where, the, where the, the star discretionary investors are extremely good is the after the fact, here's why I did what I did story. Um, and, and, and the really, really, really good ones are the ones that even when they lose money can convince you that they made the right trade. And so, and so that's like that in your, your hashtag so, global macro. Yeah. So, so like you're, it's, and it's hard, right? It's so important that your investor understands your story that they, because, because they have to hire your thought process and you as people still, like, it doesn't matter who, like, like if you're going to hire someone and bring them in house, you get to know them well. And when you hire a discretionary manager, you get to know them well. When you hire a systematic manager, I think some of the times you're just hiring a return stream or, or, or a marketing that's perception. And, and, and that's the perception as well, because I think a lot of times the, the allocators don't know systematic all that well. And so it's hard for them to get to dig into the thought process. And that's definitely a challenge. And so it's, it's the, the onus is on the systematic guys to explain how they think in their thought process in a way that, that resonates. And so I tried really hard to think about different ways to do this. How much of probably, that is... How much of that is self-imposed by quants, though? I mean, I go, I look back to post two thousand eight, and and over the last decade, quants have done nothing but say, "Look how great we are." When you buy a quant process, it's systematic, it's disciplined, it's not going to change, and we backed ourselves into a corner because the reality is, being a quant doesn't mean your process doesn't change. It just means the way that you view the world is through a quantitative lens. We would hope there's an evolution of process. But the entire smart beta ramp up was this philosophical push for consistency of process. And I think we did this to ourselves in a large way. I, I honestly think quants are very responsible for the current conundrum they're in. I, I, I don't disagree at all. Um, and, and there's a lot to unpack in what you just said there, because there are certain things where you can say, like, I understand why I have a defined thought process and that thought process should have some stability to it. But, but the way you capture it and even the different things you try and capture that like you have to be constantly evolving. Like, I mean, like, like you're, I mean, I mean, if you are standing still, you're falling behind. There's no doubt about it. And so, you, I mean, your entire day to day, and if you don't love research and you don't love coming up with new ideas, and you don't love building new stuff, it's not the right space for you because you can't just settle in and lock down and, and, and sit back and go retire. Um, but there are like, I do understand um, that, you know, like does low vol or low minimum variance or quality or value they can be done better and differently. I think some of those things have kind of unfortunately locked down a little bit. Um, you, I, people can, can fiddle around at the margin, but the majority of that is probably kind of locked down. I think that's part of the problem as well for quant investing in general is that when something gets locked down, it becomes commonplace and well-known. It gets crowded, right? And, 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 and you know, if, if I have a story and if I have a thesis, you know, and, it, and it's across the board, it's not just systematic investing, but it's a crowding is the enemy. There's just no, there's just no way around it. When, whenever whenever a, any trade gets too crowded, any idea gets too crowded, any position, any asset class gets too crowded. Just by definition, it's prices get bid up, you know, for the same cash flows you're buying, the prices are higher, the cash flows are the same, your expected return becomes lower. Um, you know, your, your, your risks go up as it gets crowded, your correlations, um, uh, you know, rise as, as, as all sorts of people are trading the same sorts of things. And so crowding, you know, it drives down risk adjusted returns, it, it drives up correlations, uh, it drives tail correlations. And, and like it's, and, and then in, in systematic investing and in alpha strategies, it's, it's even worse because the crowding is not just, you know, it's not just like, hey, buy and hold and, and, you, and you get what you get down the road. And if other people coming behind you, you know, at least you benefit from that because everyone is competing at the margin for the next trade. And so crowding gets attacked at the actual time of execution as well for those guys. And so it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And uh, like, you know, like when I, I, I was trying to go back through this and I'm going to repeat myself because I was like, what, 
what did we talk about in that first podcast again? I was trying to remember, and I, and I read through the transcript. Went, oh yeah, we talked about like almost everything, and so and so because we covered a lot of stuff. And and then in the second you know conversation, where we really kind of dug into portfolio construction and betas and alt betas and 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 putting the portfolio together, the CIO's challenge and the major factors, and and the main takeaway being. Oh, it's going to be hard to be a CIO because everything is crowded. And I think it's very, very hard for people to look around in the world today and go, where is my value buy? It's, there's, there's some relative value, but where's my absolute value buy right now? Is our equities cheap? Are bonds cheap? Is credit cheap? Is ball cheap? Is alpha looking like, like where, where's, where's, the, where's the undiscovered country? And, 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 and there, there aren't many. And, and, you know, and, so, and then we went, like, here's the other problem. Like not to get like too like bearish for a second here, but not only is everything expensive, but like your major sources of risk, which are always growth risk and inflation risk. We talked about this, like you know, like like yeah. in the last podcast, you go, you know, and 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 and, and those risks which were kind of the defining risks of the world for a very long time, because like those risks sort of they they dictated almost everything. And, and obviously, there's lots of idiosyncratic things, but those are the major risks that kind of change everything. And and like in the last ten to fifteen years, we've had a new one show up on the scene, which is discount rate risk. Right, and discount rates are supposed to move with expectations of change in growth and change in, 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 in and change of inflation and and, and you know and, and by discount rates I mean everything that connects the cash flows to the price, the IRR that connects those things is supposed to move with them. And and but if you know let's say like a, a third party comes in and, and, and completely breaks the connection and, and, and to a certain extent uh, distorts you know that signal and, and and you know discount rates are all driven towards zero and the price of everything rises. You go. That becomes a very, very common uh, source of risk at that point as well. And, and I would say the major driver right now in our marketplace is the occasional inflation scare, the occasional growth scare, but mostly what is the Fed going to do about those two things? Because that's actually the major source of risk is, 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 is this third-party response to those two things, which is the major driver now. And the problem with that is every single asset class on the planet is the present value of future cash flows. Every asset shares that same source of risk. There is no stocks and bonds respond to growth and inflation differently. They both get hammered in a discount rate that rises unexpectedly. And all, so does the dollar. And so does like, like everything goes. And so and some commodities are dragged into it. And, you know, an emerging versus developed is dragged into it. And so you go, man, uh, at the wrong time, and this is like we're very late stage in this, in this process, um, you start to reduce yourself from two or three factors to one dominant factor, and that becomes very scary. And you know, like, you know stuff happens like yesterday. So it's an interesting day for anyone who doesn't trade commodities. I think grains had their like biggest down day since 2009 or something like that. You know, like, like these are, these are these days that are very exciting. Um, Some of them had down days that were larger than any day since like 1988. Like it was a very long time I've, for, I've never seen like every commodity go limit down. I mean like limit, like not quite, but like it was, it was quite something. And, and so that like, what, why do they all move together at the exact same time? It's like, ah, it's, it's this. Except for energies. And, and yeah. Separate. Yes. So, um, so, <laughs> so, so we've got this dilemma, right? And and yeah. it is a common dilemma. It's a, it's a dilemma that's common to, to every investor. And I think that was a big motivation for, I mean, for you to sort of start this group 10 years ago and the problem has only become more acute since then. Right. And yeah. so Castlefield is, is really designed to be orthogonal to, you know, all of the major beta risks along with, um, a couple of other al alternative risks, right? Like you try to hedge out kind of trend following as a factor, but like you, you did a good job of sort of describing the meta story of quant, but not your own story. So basically say so like, here we are as a portfolio constructor, you've got these risks and it's very, very hard to diversify discount risk. And so, and so like the, the one 
way you make, because all your assets are exposed to discounting risk. And so the one way you might have a chance, I always say might have a chance, is through alpha and active management and long short. And I go like, okay, there is a predominant form of alpha in the world today, which I'm going to call like buy high, buy higher and mark up and call it alpha or buy high lever up, buy higher and mark up and call it alpha. And, and I think we'll find in the crash that that was not alpha, that's beta. But like proper long short alpha, buy and sell stuff. If, they, if you have a, a basket of stuff that you're long and a basket of stuff you're short, you have a fighting chance of being discount rate neutral, right? If you're long equities and short equities, they both expose the discount rate shock, you have a chance. The betas are the two, the discount rate shock, who knows? Um, you know, and so you look at it and you go, it's a, it's a fighting chance. And I think it's going to come in a very, very important, uh, you know, extra arrow in the quiver of investors going forward, especially, it's very, very important. The problem is the vast majority of long, short alpha processes out there have really struggled over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years. And so this is like the conundrum because unless, unless you're like literally just playing this, like, I, you know, I wouldn't call it a great full theory. That's totally unfair, but I get there early and hope enough people come in behind you to push the price up for investing. Like, unless you play that game, it's been very, very hard in the long short space. And so, and, and, and I think like, and I'm going to take like a, a five second, five minute sort of like, and talk about like, and I, and I know I did this in, in like, you know, two years ago, but just to go through it again, go like, how have investors traditionally made money? Right? I think this is really important. And, 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 and so like, I, I will do it again. And I apologize for people who are going to hear this for the third or fourth time, but like, like AQR wrote an excellent paper. And I think it's just very important to kind of back into it for a second and go like, Warren Buffett, Bill Gross, George Soros, right? Like, like three of the most famous discretionary investors on the planet. And, 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 you know, in this paper, they kind of went through and they regressed their returns. And they said, like, how did they make their alpha, um, you know, over the years? And, and, and they were able to explain the vast majority of the alpha from those three traders through what's now known as the modern alternative risk traders, right? And so, okay, that doesn't tell you all that much just yet, except to say that the discretionary guys were doing what the systematic guys were doing, and everyone's kind of doing the same thing, which makes some sense. It's, it's, it's hard to make money being short things that tend to make money over time. It's hard to make money being short equities. It's hard to make money being short, you know, like credit. It's hard to uh, credit spreads. Anything with a persistent yeah. positive drift. Which Anything is with a persistent everything. positive drift, which is which is all the things we just mentioned. And so, but mm -hmm. but the, now the onus is on you. And this is where the storytelling starts. Is like, why do these things have persistent positive drifts? Okay. No one has to justify why the equity risk premium is expected to make money over time, or the fixed income risk premium. I'm lending, and so and, and I know when I lend someone that I'm expecting to get paid back more than I lent them, right? We, and, and so we expect that there's a flow of wealth from you to me when I'm lending to you. And no one debates that. And you expect to lend me more than I lent to you. But you go, like, so what about these other things? What, like, why would there be uh, a low vol risk premium? Like, what could possibly explain that? Why would there be a value risk premium? Why, would, why is there a credit default risk? Why is there a vol selling risk premium? Why is there a commodity back on premium? Why is there a trend falling? And, and, and so I think like, instead of saying, hey, these things made money and they worked, and let's just accept that that's a fact, I think you got to come back and go. Why? What is the what is the what is the driver? And I think like the, the key feature of that driver is that every single one of these is an anti-crowded play of some sort or another. And so you go, what does what do you mean by anti-crowded? You go, you can look at each one of those risk premiums and say there is a concentrated set of players who are happily paying wealth to another set of players because it's in their best interest to do so. And so we I know we talked to this a couple of years ago. And, it's like, and, and the, the key feature is that happily and on expectation paying money from one set to another. The same way as the equity risk premium, the fixed income risk premium, there's payers, there's payees, and they're both happily entering the transaction. But why would anyone persistently pay money away on expectation? Because that's like, that does that seem like completely irrational? You know, no. It's Which flies in the face of most people say they're willing losers, right? That they are, you are stealing money from those losers. Not at all. The if way I you buy a chocolate bar, 
if I buy a chocolate bar from you and I spent a dollar and I got a chocolate bar, I'm not a loser. I'm happy. I wanted that chocolate bar. I was willing to pay more than a dollar. And, and so like, this is a marketplace. If we can get together and, and I can give you something that makes you better off and I can pay you some money for it and we're both better off, we're both winners. There's absolutely not a loser in that game. And that's, that's the key feature of a risk premium is that there's this transfer of utility where both are better off. You know, through, and, and, and it can be through money. It can be through a transfer of risk. There's lots of different ways. We say like, so, and so my thing, if you look at each of these things, go, why, why, what, what are the drivers? Why do people get caught paying money away and why, and why are they happy to do it? And so I have like three, and this is just my story now, but I got three kind of drivers that I think explain why people will do this, right? And, and types of crowding, because it's, it's like I said, it's always from a crowded page to an uncrowded page. And you go like the first, the first reason that people get crowded is for structural reasons, right? Like, and, and I can talk about this is like regulatory or, or, or governance or, or like, and they're forced to trade in a subset of the universe because they're constrained investors. You know, the second set of, of crowdedness is going to call it behavioral. And people get crowded because it's just human nature to do the same things as everyone else. And that like naturally creates a set of crowdedness. And so if you can find the other side of that trade, there's a flow of wealth. And, this, and the third type of crowdedness I'm going to call uh, natural long positions. And when you're naturally long something, you demand insurance. And so there's insurance risk premiums for people who are naturally long one side of something. And go, that explains every single one of the modern alternative risk premiums and every single thing that the, that the, that the, that the Buffett and the Soros and the Bill Gross, everything that they found and, and kind of came up with intuitively over the 20 or 30 years, they discovered and they intuitively went, oh, here's a pocket of crowded, here's a pocket of uh, underloved, and there's a flow of wealth. And so like, to give you some examples, like structural, like, and, I, and by structural, it's just my terms, but I go, Constrained investors, uh, uh, and you go, okay, investment grade, credit. The vast majority of investors who invest in investment grade, or sorry, who invest in credit, are forced to only invest in investment grade, right? The vast majority are constrained investors. They can only do investment grade. In fact, a ton of them can only do or spend all their time in the seven to 10 point of the curve because there's a, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's, this is the liability immunizing discount point for pension plans. And you go, so these are very crowded trades for, for natural reasons because they're meeting someone's utility. And and if you're own, if you're an investment grade you know investor and a name gets downgraded, you have to sell it, right? And it goes from being a crowded from a crowded asset with a high price and a low return. And when everyone forces to sell at the same time, it, it falls out and it becomes suddenly this underloved, overlooked, low price thing with a higher expected return. And 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 these people happily sell it because it's in their best interest too. Because if they don't, they get fired because their governance says you cannot own this thing. They're, it's absolutely they're constrained investors. And by definition, any constrained investor who bumps up against their constraint would mathematically rather have that thing. But if they can't, if you, if, so if something bumps up to your constraint and you can only have so much or not of it at all, it falls out of it, you on expectation would like to have it in your portfolio. It means that you expect it to be accretive to you, which means by taking out, you expect that you're paying someone else to take it. And so there's an expectation of flow of wealth, but you happily do it because it's in your best interest too. Now, if you're an unconstrained investor who isn't forced to only invest in investment grade, yeah, buying the fallen angels is a well-known strategy that significantly outperforms. And so this is like just taking advantage of a, uh, 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 of you know, like the effect of a constraint and it kind of the gradient between the constraint, and the unconstrained investor, and like and there's that flow of wealth across that gradient, right? And so, that, like I think that one's pretty obvious. I mean, you have um, other structural might be, you know, like low vol is, is explained because you have a bunch of investors who cannot use leverage or who have a very very strong negative utility leverage, and you go, okay, in the maximum sharp ratio world, I would invest in all things. I use my risk free rate to lever up the low stuff, which by the way is what Warren Buffett did. Right, he bought low vol names and leveled them up 1.7 times, and that was a massive source of his alpha, because a lot of people can't or won't, and so you get crowded in the naturally volatile asset classes. And I know we talked about this last time, but like, we, you know, we found this in every asset class we looked for. We first found it in fixed income, because we went like, why is the why is the 30 year bond such a lower sharp ratio bond than the 10 year bond, and why are those both lower than the five year bond? It's like, well, I can tell you what a pension plan does when they want more fixed income duration. 
they don't they don't lever up a five year bond to the to the dollar duration they want. They 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 move along the curve like everyone, and they get in the back end of the curve becomes very crowded. It has all the volatility and half the return. And you go, well, that's a loser trade. But 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 if you can't use leverage or you don't like leverage, that's that's what you have to face. And so in every asset class we looked at, the naturally volatile asset class is a lower risk adjusted return, and the, and the lower volatility asset class, if you can lever it up, is a, is a higher risk adjusted return, and, and, and it's, it's a superior investment. It's a flow of wealth between the constrained and the unconstrained. I mean, you have other, like, I mean, you have tons of structural players who are like, if you're an ETF guy, and your job is to match the index perfectly, right? And you go like, okay, so I, if, if, I, if I told you, hey, I know that a name is going to get added to the index, and you should buy it earlier, some alpha in that, and because you'll buy it before everyone else, and you'll do better, and I go, that's not my job. I don't want to make alpha. I want minimum tracking error. I just want to buy it when I'm told to, like everyone else. I want the exact same return as everyone else. So when everyone, when it gets mentioned, everyone else goes to buy it. We buy it at the same time. I have no tracking error. That's my job because that's my utility. And so, I, and so at the same time, I know there's a flow of wealth out, but I'm happily doing it because my job and my definition of my utility has been is different than maximum sharp ratio. And so there, like you know, you can argue anyone following a set of rules who's being forced to follow a set of rules. And there's, and there's enough people doing it so that it becomes a source of crowdedness is going to have a flow of wealth away from them. And so that's structural, right? Behavioral is like is, is much easier. Behavioral is just, it's it's just humans love to do the same thing as other humans. It's, it's naturally, you know, it's, 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 it's very, very hard to go against the crowd. And so this, you know, this explains trend following, explains value. You know, at the end of the day, like what's value? Value is like this name is getting sold down. It's getting sold down too far. It's getting sold down because by definition, everyone hates it. And when everyone hates something, there's a reason, there's a story, there's, there's, there's a scandal, there's a competitor doing well, there's a competitor doing badly, who knows? Like at the end of the day, there's gonna be some reason why everyone knows this thing is a dog and it's really, really hard to go against the flow and go, eh, I kind of like this guy here. And it takes a weird intestinal fortitude to do that. But if you can do that, you should capture a risk premium. Once again, concentrated, unconcentrated flow of wealth. And 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 so the utility that you're, that you're transferring is, is the sense of safety of being with the crowd. Right. And so, and that, and, and there is, and that's the utility that, that, that they're buying. And that's what you're, that's what, if you can, if you're willing to pay that, pain, you can capture that risk premium. And then and like there's lots of examples of those. And then the last one I would say for crowdness is like the way I think of it is uh, you know like natural long positions. And, and, and we talked about this as well, but it's like if you're a farmer and you got a field of corn, you like your entire livelihood is tied on what the price of corn is going to be in six months. You don't want that. Like no, like Rod, you don't want to sell all your you know like all your wealth and buy only corn futures and, and sink or so on what corn's going to be. That's a, that's a garbage trade. Like you if you're a farmer you want to be in the in the business of growing corn, not speculating your entire life's wealth on what the price of corn is going to be in six months. So you need someone to, to, to insure you, right? And like any form of insurance, like if you go buy house insurance, you know that you're doing it at an expected loss, right? You know the insurer is expecting to make a profit. So you understand that you're doing it at a loss, but you're doing it happily. Once again, you're paying that money away, that premium away, because on expectation, you're better off. If your house burns down, that's a catastrophic loss. You can't afford that. And, and, and so you pay some small piece of your wealth, but you but you, you a massive tail hedge and you're better off. You feel happier for that trade. And the insurance company takes what for them is a tiny sliver of return and an even tiny sliver of risk that diversifies away. If your house burns down, it's one of 10,000, they're fine. And so they are net accretive. Their risk-adjusted return is higher. Your risk-adjusted return is higher. You're both better off. You're both happily into the transaction. But there's a flow of wealth, right? And so and there are tons of those risk premiums. And, you know, and what makes it exciting in the commodity world is it's like, you know, the farmer is long corn, but Kellogg's is short corn. And so the first thing that happens in the futures market is not that you go to a speculator and pay them insurance risk premium to cover your, your insurance risk. When you go to the speculator and you go, like, like, first of all, Kellogg's and the farmer get together and they insure each other mid, right? That's why the futures market is so amazing. It's because like for free, these guys insure each other. But at the end of the day, one of them is left holding the back, right? Supply, demand imbalances and, and all the substitutes and availabilities, either the insurer, 
you know, or well, they get know, exactly know. what they want at the time that they that they make that deal, right? That's right. And and so and and, and once that imbalance goes too far, there's either not enough people to, to supply the insurance on the other side, or the price gets too high, and that's where the speculators will step in and take the difference. And so, <laughs> um, so so that's it. So and so those are like those are the three major sources of crowdedness, right? And so the genius of the Warren Buffett and Bill Gross and the and, and, and the Soros is that they they realize that within each of these major asset classes, right, were a ton of long short portfolios that could be created within them that were that were that were the function of supply demand imbalances or crowdedness imbalances that you could isolate and that they persistently made money over time, right? Okay. So, yep. So, I don't know. I don't mean to interrupt, Chris. I, I think yeah. this has been sort of um, one of the most well established narratives over the last decade. I think that's what a lot of the smart beta growth was on. I like your phrasing of crowdedness. I am curious though. I mean, again, a lot of these trades have now become prepackaged and available in a way that they weren't 30 or 40 years ago. Even if I knew about Fallen Angels as an individual, it was very difficult for me to put Fallen Angels categorically in my portfolio until VanEck launched an ETF. And now there's hundreds of billions of dollars chasing these structurally, which is going to have a reflexive impact upon whether these premiums can even continue to exist, right? Because there was a consistent set of, or not consistent, but there was a supply and demand imbalance. And now all of a sudden, you know, we've eased access to one side of the trade. And I don't think there's more people on the other side of the trade, right? So you would expect the premium to diminish. I'm curious as to where you think Blue Ocean remains in this space. Because to me, it seems like a lot of the empirical evidence would suggest that the premiums have been dramatically squeezed over the last decade. Right. Would would you say that those trades are getting crowded? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So 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 this is like like and, and this is it. They're anti-crowded trades that themselves have gotten very crowded. Right. It requires a gradient differential. And what happens if enough people come to here? What happens if more? Like if you're if you're going to buy insurance and there's only two insurance companies, they can probably charge you a pretty hefty like insurance premium. They, they're going to charge you some fair you know fat amount. You come back and there's fifty insurance companies offering you insurance, presumably that's getting squeezed pretty hard. And if one of them is like crazy and wrong, maybe you can get it for like less than it's worth. At the moment, these anti-crowded plays themselves have gotten shockingly crowded. And that has uh, really, really hurt the space. And that commoditization of the space is um, uh, is is the the main challenge and the problem. But it's not, and so my point is, it's not just hurting the systematic guys because the discretionary guys also kind of do the same stuff and have for a very, very long time. And so in, in many ways, it's hurt everyone. Like I said, if it's not a buy high, sell higher, markup type of trade, like it's it's a very very hard space to be in. So, what we started doing was I would say this is even back in 2010, 2011 when I first started like the bones of my first sets of ideas around this was was thinking like oh my god the space that we're in which has done really well for us and we had a great narrative back in 2004 because back in 2004 this narrative like when I when, I, when we put it out there the response was and I had a very very supportive set of bosses like Wayne Cozen and Mike Witzel and Neil Petrov like they were all like they gave us unbelievable amounts of time and and. And, and leash and, and we built some like really good stuff and it went really well and i would say um you know like at that time i think we put together something pretty like like relatively innovative relatively early for a pension plan but by 2010 2011 i was hearing the same story that i just told you back at me from everyone and and it was other pension i mean i talked to tons of pension plans like you guys should all be doing this you know and i talked to other hedge funds and you heard it from bank like bank products started started really like coming out like i think you said like in the etfs and you, and so this story, which was an, itself an anti-crowded story, began to get extremely crowded. And I went, ah, what are we going to do about this? Because this is our space. This is going to cause problems. And so like the, the first thing, and like I said, you're always innovating. There wasn't like a, 
now we're on to the next thing. It was a constant, like, what can we do about this and how do we take advantage of this? And what are the implications of this? And so what we really started to start to like think about is like, how can we take advantage of this crowdedness in this fix? Because like when I said, like, you know, you talked about those structural, structural guys, the ETF who's following a set of rules and doing something, everyone's doing the same rule at the same time. You know, what, what was very apparent to us was that everyone was doing kind of the same thing. So this is like, this is like the, the, the beauty of systematic investing and the massive challenge of it. And, and like I say, once again, not just like all investing, like, like doing something similar, but you know, if you're a trend follower, and like we built a CTA, we built our CTA had like, I think at first five different models, right? We had a moving average crossover, breakout, some regression slopes, like regression crossover, like serial correlation, like, and, and like different ideas. We, and very early on, we were doing an ensemble approach with all the different parameters we can come up with. And the kind of weird thing was like, they were all like 80 to 90% correlated, right? They all did roughly the same thing. And really when a big trade came, they all were trading at the same time. You know, and then and then we went to talk to managers because because one of the things we're doing at Teachers is we had a you know manager external manager portfolio. We went to like you know talk to managers, and you know we'd always be very careful and say so, like we're running a like a prop shop and we have you know but we, like what our filter was typically send us your daily returns. We'll regress it against our internal model suite, and we'll see who's doing something different. And and the sort of the crazy takeaways you got two hundred sets of returns, like you could fully explain one hundred and seventy of them with your like with what we were doing. We had a very scorched earth approach, and, and so it was like oh. Our models are saying that they're all kind of the similar. When we talk to managers, they're all kind of doing the same sorts of things. And we were looking for the crazies doing like, you know, like, like stuff like a bit different that we couldn't do. Um, uh, but, but like the takeaway is like this stuff that we're doing, um, you know, if I'm buying crude on a Wednesday morning, like so is everyone, right? I have a pretty good sense of what like a good chunk of the world is doing because I've been running it myself and I have a pretty good sense that that's pretty indicative of what a lot of other people are doing. So it wasn't like I, I can go back and say, like, I know what everyone else is doing, but I say I've got a pretty good indicator that my model suite has gotten crowded. And so can I start staring at my own model suite and start to look at the implications of how different bits and pieces of it interact? And when has something gone full? And when is when are, when, when is like, when has an asset got crowded? When has a model got crowded? When have parameters within assets within models gotten crowded? And start to get a sense of, like, what are the implications of that? Because once again, when anything gets crowded, um, you know, you have to you want to get on the other side of that trade. If you can find the relatively uncrowded piece, you can build a long short book, right? And you can build long short books by, because when something gets crowded, either its returns get driven down or its risk gets driven up. And you can build a long short book by two things where I think this guy's got higher return than this and I have no, no view about risk. You can build a long short book where I go, I have no view about return, but I think this thing is riskier than this thing. So this is higher, like this is lower sharp ratio and this is higher sharp ratio. And I can still build you know, a, a flow of wealth between a higher sharp ratio and lower sharp ratio just by focusing on where I think the, the, the sources of risk are. And so, and we can start to, like, we can look at that at the asset level and look at the parameter level, the model level. And so we started to build uh, a ton of anti-crowded models within the alt-risk premiums themselves, right? And the key feature about that and the kind of the cool part of that is that they are themselves alt-risk premium neutral. And they're also beta neutral. So, you know, your equity fixed income neutral on average over time and commodity neutral over time but you're also trend following neutral over time. And, and, and it takes a lot of work and, 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 and keeping it that way is, is, is challenging. But we have like these, you know, these 20 models and you know, the key feature of them is like they're, they're properly uncorrelated because like the average cross correlation term over the last 3,500 days is like 0.03. So like they're properly different from each other. And, so, and, then, and then of course, like anything, it becomes a portfolio construction and risk question to make, to make sure that you can keep those guys uncorrelated and keep them diversified and size them right and, and, and build a trusty portfolio. Just to portfolio unpack level. that a little bit, Chris, um, when you say you're looking for anti-crowded factors, that might be interpreted as you're looking to arbitrage crowded traditional factor 
plays, but I don't think that's quite what you mean, right? So yeah, so take us through more. Arbitrage is the wrong word, but like if you kind of go like, look, how do you make money in this world? Like how, how do investors make money at a very, very high level? And, and this is going to be crazy simplistic and probably wrong, but I'm going to go with you have to be early and or you have to be different. Because look at it the other way, right? If you do the same thing as everyone else, if you if you literally have the exact same portfolio as the average person, you should expect median returns. That so you cannot expect to outperform to do the same thing as everyone else. If you do the same thing as everyone else and you get there late, you should expect to underperform. And right, and so the key, I think, the key to to to, to alpha in this world, the key to, the key to outperformance is early and different, or early or different. If you can do both of them, and 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 so. What we are like, what we're trying to say is like, there's two sources of alpha for an allocator, right? There's your manager's alpha, and so I can say as a manager, what what are we trying to do? Is like we are trying to be early and or different across the board, or we're trying to stay away from crowded. Like you have to stay away from the crowded trade, or you have to find the uncrowded trade. And so what we're really trying to do is that you can either anticipate flows or avoid crowded positions. And and in both of those cases, um, and, and and once again, crowded positions can be imputed lots of different ways. Like we do it from looking at our own internal model suite and going, where, like, where is this fully crowded? We can, we can, we can, we can anticipate it from. Um, I mean, we have one model that's just it literally has just a bunch of trading rules, like, and they're kind of nonsense on their own. There's a whole bunch of trading rules that have a whole bunch of different utilities and a whole bunch of really like agents that we simulate doing their thing. And if you just follow the trading rules, it doesn't really do anything. But the real, like, the real key is like as those trading rules interact, when do they get crowded, and what are the implications of that crowdedness? How can I lean against that crowdedness when it happens? And so, and so, and, and so, we're not just going after the systematic crowdedness. We're trying to capture the best probability, like lots of different sources of crowdedness. Um, and then, of course, the key feature in all these is that every single one of these models starts with a, a like a story to myself, a thesis, right? And and then and then once you have that thesis, we start going to look for it. And then, you know, if there's and there always is a dynamic part to it, which is like the bones of the idea can be very very stable. But you have to make sure you're constantly adapting, adjusting, because the market is not stable. And the, and the instability of the market, of course, shows up in volatilities. You have to always be adapting volatilities daily to adjust for, like, you know, assets change. The instability shows up in betas. Betas are, are um, you know, if, if something has changed, if you talk about what, what has changed in the last 10 years, like volatility is, well, volatile is way higher, right? I mean, if you look at, like, like, and, like and, like, lots of different ways to look at it, the crash, take 87 out for a second, but, like, 2000, 2003 was, like, Three years. 2008 was six months. 2020 was I don't know two weeks. Very fast, very ferocious. Volleyball has gone through the roof. But also like the betas of interactions of things, things that used to be uncorrelated have suddenly become far more correlated. And the speed of that change has changed as well. And those and, and not only is it has it drifted higher, but it but the movement of those betas are much quicker. And so like like one of the major sets of like of efforts and transformations is like how do I keep these ideas uncorrelated? How do I keep how do I keep my my assets within my models? uncorrelated, which is, a, which is obviously a huge fight. And then how do you keep the models themselves uncorrelated with each other? Because if pockets of, like a bunch of models, they're interacting. And, and what happens if nine of them go long S&P? What happens if 14 go long s &P? What happens if like 20 go long S&P? And how do you handle that? I and was so, going to say, there's only a, a hand, and there's only a certain number of markets, right? You're talking about 20, 25 different models, but they're all interacting with a, with a, a, a small universe of markets, right? So right. So here's the thing: being when you able start to up, look at the overcrowded trades, you start of with markets classes. on the on the left side. You've got stocks, bonds, commodities, FX, vol. Oh, I don't know. You can put a couple of, but let's just say, like, like roughly speaking, those are your liquid assets. I'm going to call that two and a half asset classes, like or two and a half risk premiums. I think the stocks yep. are a risk premium, bonds are a risk premium, commodities. I'm not convinced the long side to commodities is a risk premium. 
like, you know, and maybe a bit, but I'm going to say like, not necessarily, like I said, like the, the risk premium to the farmer or the risk premium to Kellogg's, who knows? It can be, it can be either side. And then FX doesn't even have a long side. You can't talk about the long side of FX. So, so, I mean, there's obviously risk premiums within these things, but there's only like two and a half assets. Now you break commodities. I think commodities is a complete misnomer. It's like commodities is like saying stocks and bonds. Like it's got at least five kind of different things inside it. So maybe commodities is, if you look at that set, you go, let's say I got seven assets. Bit of a, it's a bit of a stretch, but let's say you got seven kind of things there. The interesting thing is once you start to transform things through models, they become more diversified. You get more effectively independent assets, right? And if you think of it, like trend following, right? Like trend following, if I, if I got, let's say, let's say U.S. and Canada equities are 80% correlated. I can tell you with certainty that after you trend follow U.S. and Canadian equities, their correlation is, is less than 80. I don't know how low it is, but I can tell you it's less than 80 with 100% certainty because there's only two cases. If your trend following model is like exactly for like, you know, every time you're long S&P, you're long Canada, and every time you're short S&P, you're short Canada, you have the exact same signal, signal for both of them, then you're going to be 0.8 correlated. If you are ever long S&P and short Canada, or even like half long S&P and like full long, anytime your signals are a little bit, you know, disparate, the, the diversification of your signals kicks in and the, and the correlation between trend followed S&P and trend followed Canada is below 0.8. And so what you see is as you run things through a, these transformations, these models, you end up with a more effectively independent asset. So maybe you go from like, I, I really what's more like four or five to maybe like 10. Now, if we're doing a second version of that, now I'm going long, short trend following, which is going long, short S&P 500. And you got a second generation. And what you'll see is the average cross-correlation term of your assets has transformed through a model, has transformed through a model, comes down again. And so you get more and more effectively independent things to play around with. And so that's a huge boost to diversification benefit. Chris, can, you I, play can, little, you start to do that. can I play a little bit of devil's advocate to that? Yeah. Wouldn't that implicitly be true whether your signals have value or not because you're just you could just say i'm going to introduce a random variable that random variable that is your signal is going to buy right so to your trend following example it doesn't even have to be trend if you just had a random variable you're drawing a random normal and that's how you were position position sizing your u.s equities and you're drawing another random variable to position size your canadian equities right Yep. By definition, you've introduced a new, um, a new asset, but it doesn't mean that asset, it is an independent bet, but it doesn't mean it's an independent bet with value, right? It doesn't mean it's actually a new asset that's additive to your process in any way. 100% agree. It does not necessarily say that at all, but you hope that your trends following transformation also has some alpha in it that, that does create some of that value. So now I have a, some value created and a more diversified basket. And so, and so like, look, if, you're, if your transformations are random, yes, your correlation comes down, but I'm not sure that's going to help you in any way. What you're looking for is additive accretive signals, but just know that as you add those accretive signals, as you go layers deep, that, that your effective diversification, the number of effectively independent assets you have after those transformations rises, which is, which is what I'm getting at. And if which, those which things I also have a, yeah. But I think that's, uh, that's somewhat, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's by definition, it has to be. Yes. Right. So yes, I agree. It's in introducing more diversification by definition. It's a question of whether that diversification is valuable. Well, so whether... if, if it, yes. And so if you look at it, you say, if I have things that have a lower correlation that also have a positive sharp ratio that will create a portfolio. Yes, that's valuable. Like, like diversification on loan, like if, I, if you gave me 10 uncorrelated things with zero expected return, no. At the end of the day, when you're portfolio constructing, when you're building ideas, when you're putting models together, you're trying to find positively expected return things that are, have relatively low correlations. That's how you build a portfolio of ideas. 
may I put an asterisk on that? If you're rebalancing at a long at a certain frequency, you might actually be able to provide a positive expectancy portfolio because of the rebalancing premium, right? Shannon's demon and all that. So diversification on its own with proper rebalancing might actually be accretive for zero expected returning assets. Yeah, but then I would, I would argue that's a source of alpha. I would, I would just say it's a source of alpha. Of like that's, that's, that is, so I would say like you could take a non-rebalanced portfolio and a balanced portfolio, find the long short book that is your rebalancing premium, call that alpha, extract it out, maybe even blow it up and put it back in if you want to. And you say that's a brand new, that's a, that's a source of alpha for sure. Yeah. So, sure. so like, and, and that, that, that noise capture, that, that's like, look, I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of quant factors where people didn't realize that like you could go long the quant factor or short it. It was the equal weight of the factor itself that was outperforming the underlying like the benchmark that they were fighting against. And, and so um, like this is one of those interesting things about equal weight. Part of the outperformance of equal weight is that volatility capture mm-hmm. for sure. And so and so you'll see that with like a part of the outperformance of value weighted. Therefore, is there some of that of that of that of that, of that noise capture? So like, um, like, yeah, I, I want to get into crowding <laughs> as a. Yeah as a bit of a social phenomenon, like you, you described three reasons why things could get crowded. One of them is behavioral. And I, I want to get into whether you think the advent of social media has to an extent exacerbated a, an emergent kind of social phenomenon. Right. And we talked on a, on a previous occasion about, about riot theory and how yeah. riot theory may help to explain the, um, you know, the emergence of, of crowding, how, how do you, how do you put those, how do you put those pieces together or think about so, that? So there's a, the, the, I, this is, this is like, this is just, I, I took a, an urban economics class in like, I don't know, third year for fun. And, uh, and it had this like for crazy, fun. For fun, it was okay. great. I, I, I quite enjoyed it. But like, anyway, so it was like, it was, it was a pretty neat class. And, and so it, it had a couple like cool things, but one of them was like, there was two lessons, like two classes on riot theory. And, and, and so let me back up for one second, because like human synchronization is such an important topic because, because the entire efficient market hypothesis assumes a bunch of independent rational agents. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't assume what happens if everyone does the same thing at the same time. Like, like where is it? Where is, you know, like, what, what are the implications of that? And it turns out they're ferocious. And, and if you look at it, you go like, like humans at times will naturally synchronize and, and, and it just naturally like organically. And like, and like, I think like there's some really cool videos you're looking at on YouTube where it's like, I, it was like, there's an audience in like Prague or something at the end of a concert. And the you know, audience is all doing their independent clapping. And at some point, somehow like some tipping point is reached and there's enough of like people clapping at the same time where the whole audience goes like, and it's a tipping point and suddenly everyone's clapping at the exact same time. And, and you can see the audience going, what's going on? This is weird. But, but it's like, it's suddenly you've got, you know, 5,000 people just naturally organically synchronizing. And you go, that's, that's cool. No problem with that, right? That's kind of a neat story. And then, like, and then you have like other kind of synchronizations, which were like maybe can be more destructive. Like, like you know, like in, in two thousand, uh, London built their Millennial Bridge, right? And, and it was like this brand new, very exciting. They they had they opened it to the public for the first time, and they closed it two days later, because because it nearly tore itself apart in the first two days. And the and the issue was like everyone knew that like if you put soldiers across the bridge marching at the same time, that that, 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 that there could be a natural frequency, and if you get that wrong, the bridge will oscillate to it, and you can destroy it. So engineers know that, and so they they make sure they engineer beers without the natural frequency of human footsteps. What like what they got wrong here was that this bridge had enough flexibility to it that when people started walking, it started to sway a little bit. And as it started to sway a little, a tipping point was reached, and suddenly everyone had to start walking at the same time because they're all counterbalancing the sway, and it started to make it sway more and more and more. And so they had forced a, a, a synchronization on a group of people, and that forced synchronization was extremely destructive because these things become naturally self-reinforcing. 
right? And that's what the riot theory was actually about as well, because the riot theory was like, it's like there's a continuum of people from people who are willing, and this is riot as in like, who's willing to get out there and throw a rock and smash a window, riot theory. And, and, if, you, and if you think about it, if you've got like a certain percentage of the population is just willing to go out and throw a rock and smash a window at any time, right? Because, because, because you know, because, like, yeah, why not? And, and, and the why not that most people answer is because, because I could get arrested or go to jail or get caught on YouTube and face like, you know, like get fired because there's, social, there's repercussions. And the fear of that repercussion is what stops some people from doing it. Now, there's some people who would never. doesn't matter how, if you could if you guaranteed you never got caught, some people will still never get involved in a riot. But there are plenty of people who go, eh, might be fun. Why not? And if enough people, if, and, and as more people get involved, as more people get involved, it starts to get safer. It's the same thing. Like there's, like there's a great video on YouTube of people dancing. And the first guy out there dancing by himself on the field, I think he's high as a kite, you know, he's just, just doing his thing and he's by himself for like 10 minutes. And then the second dancer comes in. And it's always the second, the most important dancer is the second dancer. It's the person who joins. And someone will go, oh, that's cool. And the next thing you know, everyone joins. And it, it happens very quickly. There's a tipping point. It turns over. Riot- it's my specialty. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So riot theory is like, is that. It's, it's enough people get involved. You know, you've got five people walking down the street. You know, like smashing windows, the police can arrest them. But if ten thousand people go down the street, the police have to step back and try and clean up the mess the next day. Harold you know, Moore so, from um, uh, Transfriend has a really good um, I- invocation or metaphor of of this as well with flocks of birds, right? Yeah. So think about migrating birds, and mm-hmm. they're they're flying down the coastline, and only a very small fraction of the birds knows where they are at any given time right and it turns out they've modeled this and they've and they've been able to um confirm it empirically that so long as a number of birds equal to the square root of the total size of the flock is knows where they are at any given time then there's enough sort of whatever it is mimetic sort of gravity between the flock that it can keep the flock flowing in the right direction, right? It's like this, this yep. criticality of, of information that then allows the entire group to, to rally in the right direction, right? It, yeah, all, exactly. All kind of the it, same phenomenon. And so that's what I was thinking. So I watched that video on clapping, actually. It was the one on clapping. I went, ah, oh, that is so crazy how humans can get together and suddenly, you know, suddenly they're all, they're all working together. And I thought, oh, that's a lot like what's happening in investing right now, you know, because, because at the end of the day, like the efficient market hypothesis kind of goes like, we're all independent beasts and he goes well, what happens like and, and you know we always had investment clubs and you had hedge funds who controlled a lot of money of pension plans who like collecting more money but like you know what happens when you have like a reddit army of three or four million people who get together and they go here's what we're going to buy today and we're going to try and like and it's sophisticated like not 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 like you know like we're going to understand the like we're going to we're going to like understand what the pressure points on the short sellers and what a gamma squeeze is and like but like hey if we all get together and no one and no one sells and everyone buys like what, what will happen you go like that, that that giant collusion you know like like you know, if, if five people go walking down the street smashing windows, you can arrest them. If 10,000 people go down the street smashing windows, that, that's a riot. You got to step out of the way, you know, and that can have, that can expand. That can, that can, like, if enough people get into it, it can go across the entire country. You know, if 2 million people are walking down the street, that's not, that's a revolution. And, and, and that can overthrow a system. And who knows what the system's going to look like the next day. And I feel like we're at, where there's an interesting, uh, we're, we're at a very, very interesting time right now because there is a bit of a revolution going on. Um, where, where, where suddenly we've got millions of people going like we can all in concert attack the market with, 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 a, with, a, with a stated goal of disrupting it. You know, like, like you know, a, we're not. We're yeah, not, in a way that didn't exist even 10 years ago, right? That's right. And Whether so it's this, Reddit, Twitter, yeah. whatever the kids are using this day, Twitch, so, so, who knows? 
super interesting to talk about, like to think about like, like synchronicity and how humans synchronize and whether it's organic or whether there's there's something forcing people or, or allowing people to synchronize. And then understanding that the synchronization can be extremely, extremely disruptive. And so what you see is like a, um, you know, like changes in the marketplace, like like dramatic changes in the last couple of years. Um, you, know, you know, it's like, like the like the, the the amount of sort of short like the, like like the, the fact that like the typical investor was was a volatile seller has like maybe a bunch of them at the at the at the daily level right now like massively long haul and you have to understand what are the implications of people who are just like massive amounts of long optionality and long volatility and what are the implications of the marketplace and what are the what are the implications of the marketplace now that like you know a bunch of pension plans can no longer sell volatility because because you know like Aimco had a had a blow up and the boards won't let them and suddenly like this like these are short term events that like, can transform things dramatically. And so as an investor, you have to keep an eye on them and understand like, what are they, and start to try and model. What are the implications and how do I need to react to the fact that this market day today is dramatically different than it was even two years ago? And, 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 the, and the key feature being ball of all correlations, extreme moves, correlations in the tail, big, 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 fast changes in beta as a result of all of those. Like, uh, to me, is like, is such a, it has been such a difference in the market over the last two to three years. Especially when you're trying to keep it neutral, right? Yes. When you're trying to especially, take all of that off every when single day. you're trying day. to take that off, yes. Yeah. Very, very hard. Yep. Chris, I'm curious as to your thoughts about what I would almost consider to be regulatorily promoted synchronization, right? So there's been a push. I'll use target date funds in the U.S. as an example. It's a $5 yep. billion dollar exposure in the early 2000s, now north of $2.5 being used as the primary savings vehicle for most yep. white-collar employees operating in a very synchronized manner for the most part. There's small deviations in how the glide paths are defined, but you know, how does that sort of play into your view? Does it is it sort of play back to, you know, the way indices are constructed and and there's some forced synchronization there as to how capital's deployed? Yeah. I, I mean like all, I, I mean like I know you guys have had Mike Green on a ton. He's like he's he's awesome and you know he like you know his his story of like like what is the that's that's some great synchronization when everyone when they buy equities buy the exact same package at the exact same weights and what are the implications of that? Like well I mean like you know obviously uh like I mean I love it. Like you're trying to buy like Microsoft, but Bill Gates isn't selling his Microsoft, and so like 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 that that market cap is is wrong, and the synchronicity of that is creating like massive distortions. Um, any regulatory uh, is you know any regulatory like set of constraints is going to cause um, inefficiencies, and so if you're aware of them and you aren't and you aren't forced to take advantage of them, you should be able to well, take advantage of them, right? And so and you're not forced to, to follow them, you should be able to take advantage of them. And and I would say like look. The great synchronizer, and we're not going to talk about the Fed because I'm not a global macro guy, but the great synchronizer has got to be the Fed. Because like, like I said, we went from a whole bunch of idiosyncratic synchronic factors to not even like was growth a good or growth. I mean, the job fund, like this has been like this for a long time, but the, like, the, you know, the, the job numbers come out bad and the market loves it. That is is good news. Why? Because the Fed, you know, is going to respond to it in a way that's favorable for equities. And so like, like that is like that is the that's the entire story right now. Is what is like what is this one institution going to do? And, and and have they ever created a massive, massive, massive instability? And we're all riding a tiger. We all we all got on this tiger in, I don't know, I always say ninety-seven. Some people might say two thousand eight, but like whatever, like you think that the Fed really started messing with stuff. We're all been on this tiger for a very long time, and there's I, I just don't see there's any way off. And so this we is a this is about a, this. We yeah, we chatted about this on on other occasions, right? But as systematic investors, right, who are students of history and the relationships between discount rates and valuations and and expected forward risk premia, et cetera, and who understand or are observing these phenomena, these sort of 
um, macro memes playing out over long horizons now where everything can get pushed to extremes that we've we've almost never seen historically. As systematic investors, how do you think about navigating some of these? I mean, we talked about a microcosm is kind of the Toronto housing market, but but this applies to, to a, a wide variety of other markets around the world. I would argue it applies very directly to U.S. equities, as an example, for, for reasons partly described by or explained by what, what Corey described, right? But right. as quads, how do we navigate markets that are so clearly dislocated because of these types of emergent social phenomena or coordinated or like yeah. social synchronization or survive. I got a story yeah, for Let's this. do it. <laughs> so <laughs> when I first started at Teachers, um, I, I was in a group called RE and we had, we played like um, on our very first offsite. I was just out of school and we're like, like, and like these are people who were like, this was like uh, the tattoo allocation team. There was, there was some, some groups that were responsible for like construction. There were some risk people. There was a ball seller fixed income guys, uh, some people who were like, like, uh, librarians. It was, it was, it was a hodgepodge. And so in our offsite, as a, as a sort of get to know you, we played it, we played a game. And if you guys have heard this game, like, like, like don't jump, I'd love to see your thoughts on it. And the game was this, everyone, we're going to write down a number on a piece of paper between zero and a hundred. Okay. I want you to write down two thirds of what you think the average person is going to write down. Mm. Yep. Mm. I know Butler too well for this one, I think. All right. What's your answer, Adam? Well, I know it, so I, I, I'm going to refrain. Okay. So, yeah, I, like, like, you know, you sit there for one second and go, well, like, it, it, it may take you five seconds, it may take you 10 seconds, you go, like, clearly it's zero, right? Like, the answer is zero. If yeah, you put you two-thirds of what everyone down. else puts, and you put two-thirds, and you put two-thirds, and like, it's got to go very, very quickly down to zero. I think if you're I in a room of economists, it is zero. No, of course <laughs> it's zero. If you're not in a room of economists, it's not. Of course it's zero. So, so, but that wasn't the question. The question, what is the right answer? The question is, what is this room going to exactly. put down? Put down two thirds exactly. of it. And so, and so we like, I put down zero. I'm like, look, of course I'm right. And I was so, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. The number like, like, I think the average was like 30. And, and, and so after they walked around, they asked like, you know, like someone put 75. They just didn't understand the question, you know, like, like, uh, like someone else, like very proudly went, well, everyone's going to put 50 on average, so I put 33. And, and, and someone else went, well, I thought someone else was going to put 33, so I put two-thirds of that, like 22. And like, and one person, one person went, I looked around the room, and I went, I think some of these people are going to go one generation deep. Some are going to go to uh, 25. Yeah. That was the right answer. Exactly. Right. You, yeah. go, is- you go down two, maybe two, maybe three derivatives, right? Three levels, and you stop there. That's... There, like, like, this is like... Depends on how much you respect the crowd. This is a no, very, the problem very, is, very, very, I went very straight knows, to zero with you four. If you know to go to more than one level deep, then you'll go all the way, right? Like no, so, it's, it's that's the problem. Some people yeah. only went two. So anyway, just just to say, you think so, and here and this is the problem. You are not investing against the right answer. There is no right answer. You are investing what other people think the right answer right. is, or what they are going to go to at some all. point. You are investing against other people, and they're not all as smart as you. And so you look at it and you say, like, this is like, the, and, and in 2007, I was like, this housing market is insane. Who still buys it? And the answer is a lot of people, a <laughs> lot of people. And so, and, and, and then when like, when, when like nine out of 10 housing markets in the world crashed and Canada didn't, and everyone see, it was the right thing to do. And this is a very, very important thing. There's a bunch of takeaways on this. But the fact is like, first of all, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at trying to figure out what the average, like what people are going to do. Too, I completely mate. get it wrong. <laughs> and, and so like, like, this is why as a quant, yeah, 
Like at the end of the day, you have to think about You have to put yourself in the shoes and go, what is the average person going to do? And the average person is going to go, look, just because I would say if nine out of 10 real estate markets in the world crashed, what's the riskiest real estate market in the world still? And I would say it's the one that hasn't yet crashed. But the vast majority of people go, look, this market's never crashed. It's safer. And in fact, you have risk people. You have like, like risk people at, at like, like, you know, prestigious pension plans going, like, real estate has no risk. It's like, because yours hasn't crashed. They go, well, I put it in, I put my returns into the system, I throw it in the optimizer and go, we should do more real estate. And, 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 and it's like, ouch. But at the same time, like, if enough people do that, this is the moral hazard trade. And like, I get it wrong every time. The moral hazard trade is that if enough people do it, at some point, the government goes, like, Look, like if I owe the government a million dollars, it's my problem. But if I owe the government or the bank, you know, ten billion dollars, like the government, the bank have a problem. They cannot raise interest rates now. So, so that was the right trade. It was the right trade. It turns out there was a, there was an institutional put put in behind it to protect it uh, when enough people did. So, like, so, so, like, I, I, I cannot answer from a discretionary perspective. Like, what do you do in this world of excess? Because I always go, stay away, stay away. It cannot. I know how it ends. It has to end badly. And I think that's like the genius of a George Soros. He goes. Anytime I see a bubble starting, I just want to get on it. I want to get on it early because because I can like, because that's how you make money. And so I'm I'm a run away from this because it's going to end badly. And I've done that so many and 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 it's it's clearly not the right answer. Chris, is it is it fair to say that it's almost a game of just stay one derivative ahead of the the crowd, right? Yes. So if the crowd is doing zeroth level thinking, you need to do the first derivative. If everyone is done now at the first derivative, you need to go to the second derivative. And so you don't need to go to the limit. It's just always being that derivative further than the crowd. Right. And when and you can call it derivative further, you're going to say like, you want to be one step. You, you want to predict where the crowd's going to be. You want to get the, you want to get, you want to find out where the crowd's going. You want to get there early. That's obviously, that's the best. It sounds easy. It's obviously the challenge. Uh, it's been a big challenge for me this year. Cause I, I, I've said every time I say this is dumb, when I look at what's going on in the markets, that was actually a great time to invest in whatever that is. Because I think there's a lot of zeroth level thinking going what's, on. And that's that, not an that? insult to, to what's happening. It's just I'm the one missing out on making money. Yeah, I mean, you are wrong. You're muted, Adam. Yeah. I was yeah. wondering, like, is it zeroth level or is it like nth level, right? Like, it's like the person who guessed 20 when the answer was 20 was okay, able I, to read the right no, level no, of the crowd. No, I, like, I know that's what you're saying, but it's... I had a friend with nth level, but he had, his thinking of nth level was that, like, what is... What is the what is the like what is this group of people going to do, and how do I get in front of that? I right, it's not I'm what a here. rational player should do. It's what this group of people is likely to do. Hundred percent, and get there beforehand. At peak yeah. GameStop mania, mania, I had a friend text me who bought GameStop at four hundred and twenty, and he said, "I'm sure I'll lose money, but this is my middle finger to Wall Street." And right. I said, "Citadel is loving this." <laughs> I said it's not a middle finger to Wall Street. You're just giving up your money. Right. And so but to me, that's there's there's I'm not not saying zeroth level in a derogatory sense, but there's zero investment logic going on there. Right. Right. Well, if you could, well, if you could there's no, yeah, there's point. no investment logic, but there is a human logic. Right. So I just listened to this uh, podcast series from the CBC on um, what was that exchange that went under uh, Quadriga Quadriga. Mm. And the the two guys who founded that exchange started their their money making endeavors by creating Ponzi schemes 
in these online forums where other people participated in these Ponzi schemes, where it's like, send me this money and I will return X amount of money for you next week. I I'm, can't tell you my formula, but you're going to get that money. Everybody involved knew they were Ponzi schemes, but they were playing the human game. It was like gambling of, I think I can figure out when I'm not going to be, uh, uh, be right. the guy holding the bag. It reminds so people me of the made experiments. money gaming that, right? Remember, remember Vernon Smith? I remember the, yeah. he, he's got these videos oh. from, from many. Yeah, exactly. So, um, he ran a lab for many, many years. I think it was at USC or one of the university in California. And he, he ran this lab where he performed experiments on originally students, but eventually like economists and, and floor traders and the CME and all kinds of things. And he had to play this market game. And we knew that. So the value of the asset was known at each point in time, but you could, you could still trade around the value of the asset. So it was this sort of trading game and there was a, there was a terminus. And you didn't you didn't know when the terminus was, but anyways, um, he played this game once, and this happened with every single group of traders. So he, he played the game the first time. the The value of the asset declines through time, but the participants create a massive bubble, and then the bubble crashes at some point between sort of one third and two third un until the terminus. So then they play a game with the same players, right? So have the players learn the lesson. And they do exactly the same thing. And they ask the players afterwards, you observed what happened the first time. Why did you do this again? They said, well, because I thought I could get in and out ahead of everybody else. Right. Yep. And then on the I third mean, time, the, the, the effect began to moderate. But I mean, that's why you know, I, feel, I feel a little bit sad for the GameStop crew. And I don't I, you don't want to like But at the end of the day, it's like this whole holder. Like, it, like obviously, like this is like, like you know. The, the the risk of this is that you get a bunch of people who don't really know what they're doing, and they've been told by everyone that if you never sell, if we all stay together forever, if you never sell, it's like, but but of course you have to sell at some point. This isn't going to pay you dividends that it's going to make it money. You know how this game ends. You have to sell, and so really, it's the sucker left holding the bag at the end of the day that goes, well, I thought we were all in this together, guys. And it turns out, like, I mean, and of course you need you need those people. And so what? Like, but this whole standing up and say, hey guys, we all do this together. It's like it is a giant, giant, giant game of chicken, no doubt. Because if you're ever going to make money out of it. You've created a liquidity squeeze. It is going to come down very fast when it comes down. It's a giant game of chicken. It's, it's a great fun game right now, but at the end of the day, it's you know, it's there's it's it doesn't end well. So I would argue <laughs> the entire market is an example of this phenomenon at the moment. So, you know, this is this is the CIO's dilemma. So, yep. where do we where do we go from here? Uh, so. <laughs> well, that, that's, a, that's how to a put a guy question. on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, just send him the wire instructions to your fund there, Chris. Just that's when I mean, that's when you start saying Bank of America, Swift Code. Yeah. <sighs> it's going to be hard, and I don't know. Like, I don't know because I look at this equity market and I go, really? Because because I don't think it ends well from here. Uh, you know, you, but like, but no one wants bonds anymore, and. Uh, and you know, I, I think a diverse—I like, still believe a diversified risk parity process is absolutely the foundation of how you start investing. But no one wants bonds here, and that's a hard sell. And so, you got, so what people might be looking for a little bit is like, how do I? What do I replace the bonds in my portfolio with? And and you go, what? The answer is like, should be levered bonds. They should be in there. You should have some. You might want to have stops on it. You might want to have some protections in place to make sure that you know that you protect yourself. But at the end of the day, it's probably you probably want some of there because there are still growth and deflation risks in the market. Um, but, but you probably like, and this is what I was trying to get to last year is you probably want a little bit less beta in general because beta is pretty scary here. If you got less beta and you still want to make some returns, what do you do now? They like, 
if I'm an investor, if I'm an allocator, I got, I got a couple different stories here, but like, like basically like if I'm, if I'm an allocator, I've got two different sources of alpha, right? I got my manager's alpha. I've also got my alpha. And what's my alpha as an allocator? My alpha as an allocator is finding good managers. So I'm going to call that like manager selection alpha, portfolio construction alpha, putting them together well. Um, you might, some managers might have edges over others, and your edges might be that you can trade quickly or that you have a good mandate or you have more capital. It might be that, you have, um, that you're less constrained, right? Because like in any source of crowdedness, like who's the constrained and unconstrained investor? Like there are, there are some investors out there who have a mandate who, go, who can go into emerging managers and some who can't. Um, emerging managers, academically proven, tend to outperform and they tend to have high returns and they tend to be more diversified because they tend to be a bit different. So that sounds like what you want in your portfolio, but at the same time, they're way harder to invest in because they're way more risky personally, right? It's so much easier to invest in the big name than it is to invest in the in the in the small guy. And it takes more risk. It takes more manager diligence. It takes more due operational due diligence. There's a lot of extra work that goes into it. Um, but if you're willing to get your hands dirty and do that extra work, you should be able to get some premium for it. And there's a small number of investors who can. And I would say whenever you have a competitive advantage over the rest of the universe, it behooves you to take advantage of it. So I think that's like that, that that's a that's an opportunity for some alpha. I can talk about that uh, a fair amount more. I also think like, as an allocator, putting managers together is a, is, a, is a massively difficult problem and and also potentially large source of alpha. So I'm looking at it going like, look, if, you, if you're a pension plan, you go, I build my beta well, and then I think about how, what, active, what alpha I can add. And whether that's like internal alt-risk premium or internal uh, active management, some people may still consider private equity and credit and infrastructure active. But like, I think there's a little, you have to make sure you separate out like what are the betas and what are the liquidity premiums and how much of it is 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 active? What's the value added from active management minus the cost? And and, and so you have to be careful with that. But let's say there's some of that as well. And you go. And so where do we get our liquid active management? Like I said, if you want to get that discount rate neutrality, you have to put a portfolio of managers together. And man, is that ever hard? Right? It's hard to select good managers. It's hard to select good discretionary managers because because you don't really know what they're going to do. You're buying into a thought process. It's very hard for many people to select good systematic managers uh, because a most allocators aren't familiar with the space and be the systematic guys. They all tend to, to sell the same, to sell and tell the same stories. It's and a so really it's interesting very, conundrum very in systematic, right? I mean, obviously who, who's been the, the most successful systematic manager, right? I mean, I would argue maybe if you are, right. For themselves successful in raising money or successful. Oh yeah. No, I mean like successful as a business, I'm right? Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, we're pretty happy, successful in, in like happiness, resolve, asset management. <laughs> yeah. Okay, put a pin in that. Happiness. But 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 I think there's a really interesting tension, right? Because how did one of the reasons why AQR I think grew to such a huge size is because they gave away their secret sauce, right? They published in very fine detail all of the techniques that they use to generate alpha, right? And it allowed allocators to wrap their head around it, to present rigor to their investment committees, um, to, to look at back tests and, and say, you know, this is what I'm extrapolating into the future. And, but by virtue of doing that, it also meant that it, A, you allow every other systematic manager in the world to use exactly the same techniques to generate exactly the same return streams, including to a very large degree, um, institutions like teachers, right? I mean, or, or a, a wide variety of other institutions who decided that they were going to build their own internal right. premium desks. Right. I, I'll, I'll, yeah. And so I, I, like, I'm a huge fan of the guys at AQR. I really, I think, I think they're awesome. 
Uh, I think they did some really, like, I think they, they are still doing some cool stuff. I think they did some really cool stuff. Um, I, I'm not sure that they shared as much as you think they shared. I think the stuff they were doing, but they were like, there's basically different types of alpha generators, right? There's the guys who are the grand collectors and diversifiers, and they were doing some cool stuff themselves, but like they're, they were more like gamers, like let's, let's go academically, let's collect all the different ideas out there and let's try and portfolio construct all of them together. And that grand collection of ideas is an absolutely viable way to create alpha. The problem is, is that the things that you're collecting may be well known. I don't think AQR invented any of them. And, yeah. and, so, and so Chris Atis, I guess, like, you know, he can, he can talk a bit about like some of like, the factors he worked on. But like at the end of the day, I think what they did is they collected and put together a, a very good, large, diversified basket of stuff. But that stuff itself was already known. Like we didn't get our ideas from AQR. Like, we were already running that basket when we, when we like, 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 you know, sure. like, we were already well built. And so I think at the end of the day, not like we invented them either. A lot of those things. No, no I think it's we've not done, the yeah. invention of them. It's the publication and and mass distribution of them. I guess where I'm I, going I, is I don't I don't to think what so, extent I, did that engender crowding, right? I don't, I, mean, I, don't, I wouldn't blame AQR for the crowding at all. I would say like like you can blame me. Like I may have told as many people as AQR, but like what I think is the right bastard. <laughs> but like I, obviously so, not as influential. But 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 like, but the, it's a, like synchronous rec- uh, discovery. Is that what you're saying? everybody's well, seen that with the amount of I mean, access I mean, to data, amount the, of uh, the things white that they were doing. Distribution. I would say like many of the things AQRs were doing were like collections of well-known risk premiums, and 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 they may you know they wrote books about them, and so they may have helped a bit. But I think like their success may have driven rep- like competition, and yeah. like and because what they were doing was was less a bunch of independent secret sauces and more of a, a, a grand collector. That could be probably replicated to a certain extent. Um, I, I would say, uh, look, every single every single strategy has its optimal AUM size. And and so, um, you know, one of the challenges, like, because I get this question all the time, which which is like, well, why would we invest in you when I can invest in DE Shaw or Two Sigma or, you know, like, like they, they have 500, 1500 employees, they have 500 PhDs and, and you go like, and and so you know, like, how do you compete with them? And 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 I think the question is like, look, you can do the alpha of collecting ideas. You can do the alpha of creating your own new ideas. And 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 so what we really focused on is we tried to build things that we think are like truly different. And to that extent, they go, I'm not competing with a with with a Bridgewater, with a DE Shaw, with an AQR, with a two server. Not even close. And of course, I'm not. I'd be crazy to compete directly head to head against them because when you say what's competition, the competition is. If they make money, I lose money. If I lose money, they make money. They're, we're taking each other's money. And I go, not even close. We're doing completely different things. We're not competing in any way. Like what I would say is that we're both partners in in in, in helping our institutional investors meet their their return requirements. Like like to, we're working together. We're almost partners working together because we are in no way competing. But that doesn't take away from the fact that I think we can be competitive. Like I think we can be a, a, a useful additional arrow in the quiver. But, but from that perspective, like, you know, how do you get there? And he's like, well, you have to be different. And so different is hard. And like, and this is like, like when I said the challenge of portfolio constructing, okay, I got to throw you guys another quiz here. I have two independent managers, okay? Or, or I've got a manager who's uncorrelated to me. And, and we know that if, if, if the correlation is zero, right, the diversification benefit is like 1.4 times, right? It's the square root of two. So my, my expected sharp ratio is 40% higher if I get two independent managers. Okay, how many... 0.5 correlated managers do I need to have to get the same diversification benefit? Four. Okay, so like four yeah, says 0.5 is halfway between zero and one. And and that's the like that that's an answer. <laughs> well, that's yes. an answer. Thank you. That's an yes. answer. <laughs> you said anyone, some words. anyone else? 
Um, <laughs> well, not with not with a not with a response not, like that. that yeah, that's right. I'm Do terrified. Now I've anchored. It's, right, now I've anchored. You've anchored at four. Seven. Seven. Okay, good. Forty. Forty-six. Yep. Keep going. Two. Nope. Keep going higher. <laughs> well, it. Oh, it's got to be a lot. It's got to be a tremendous. Yeah, it's got to be a tremendous amount. So he, this is crazy. I would say it's over a hundred. It takes more than a hundred. 0.5 correlated managers to get to, to 1.4 times diversification. And the answer is it's infinitely many because it asymptotically approaches. That's right. It goes <laughs> like a, a so quite literally yeah. you could find a thousand 0.5 correlated managers and not have got the benefit of one uncorrelated manager. And this is not intuitive. It's not obvious. Um, it like uncorrelated is that. very, very important. So like, and, and so, and so like, how do you keep your managers uncorrelated though? Because they don't want to be. Because, because, and this is the other major challenge, right? You're, like, say, imagine, like, imagine you could find ten uncorrelated managers, which is super, super, super hard. And and the fact is, if they're uncorrelated, let's say like, like, they each have like that one cool little sharp ratio 0.5 alpha process that no one else has. And that's and you go, that's what I want you to run. If I can find ten uncorrelated managers, then those ten guys that are uncorrelated. The, the diversification benefit is going to be square root of ten, like you know, like, like almost three, like a bit more than three times. Right? Now try holding show. 10 uncorrelated managers on your book as independent line items. So like, like yes, that's your first problem. But so, so but you go like, I, now I go like, okay, so like I, I can have a sharp ratio of one and a half if I can keep these guys uncorrelated. The problem is no manager wants to, wants to run a sharp ratio 0.5 process. It's bad business risk. Like, like that, that's like, you're, you're going to blow up at some point. And so they want, they want a higher sharp ratio. And they go, what, how do I get a higher sharp ratio? Like I put some other stuff in there. There's well-known stuff. You, like, you know, like there's lots of well-known stuff, but like, even if I just put like, and this is very interesting because this is like, you have a problem with your managers to you go like, if your managers just put a little bit of one beta, it's the S&P 500, it's the it's bonds, it's fall selling, it's credit, it's trend falling. Like you put like a little bit of that in there, as a manager, your sharp ratio rises. Or if you put half your risk in something that's 0.5, you get another point, your sharp ratio goes to 0.7, you get paid more. Your business risk is decreased, you're happier. If each manager just puts a little bit of beta, like a tiny amount, you know, 0.2 here, 0.2 here, 20% of your risk, then at the portfolio level, my sharp ratio has come down significantly and my beta has gone up significantly. In fact, if each manager just puts 20% of their risk in one beta only, I'm going to be 75% correlated to that beta at the portfolio level. Which Why? is what we because saw nearly every active manager do over the last 10 years. Exactly, because, because they're getting incentivized to because A, investors don't understand how important uncorrelated it is and they don't properly reward it and defend it. It's and because at the end of the day, if you got ten managers, I'm going to fire the one who does worse and keep the one who does best. Like, well, I want to win when everyone wins. I want to lose when everyone loses. I don't want to lose when they're winning. I'm going to get fired. And so, like, different is valuable and important, but it doesn't get it has to get rewarded right and it has to get defended. But at the end of the day, well, why does this math work? And I like to say, like, like, like the beta bioaccumulates in your portfolio, like, like, like mercury in a tuna, right? As it, like, and, and the and the issue is like, it, like alpha is by definition uncorrelated. So when you put them together, it, the risk decreases. And so the amount of risk in your alpha decreases. But if you put that beta in, it's the same beta. And so the beta adds. And so if you look at your portfolio of 10 managers, the beta stays this, the beta adds up and the alpha disappears and the portfolio just becomes more and more beta. And so you're like, I'm paying fees. My sharp ratio of my portfolio is like almost cut in half. I'm paying way more in fees. I have less alpha and I'm like 80% correlated to my beta. Like what the hell went wrong? It's like all it took was just a little bit. And, and by the way, it's never a little bit, right? And so it's hard. Yeah. You have a massive conflict of interest. And so uh, uncorrelated for managers is really hard. And, and, and you have another big problem with portfolio managers is that you never get as much ball as you want, right? Because, because you go like, if I've got 
imagine you could do it. Imagine you could find 10 uncorrelated managers and convince them to only run their sharp ratio half, which is, by the way, going to be a very hard sell, but you do it. You convince them. I'm never going to fire you. Like, like, whatever. Like, off we go. And you put them together. And, and you go, okay, so, and they're all running 10 to 15 ball. Let's just say 10 ball to make the math easy. Then at the portfolio level, you only have 3% volatility. That's right. With a sharp go, ratio, with a sharp ratio of what? One and a half. Right? One and a half, up. right? So right, but like, but like, low single great, digit returns. Like you know, you're making your you're making your five percent return, and you're and you and you and you've cut your risk. We you go like, ah, I was trying to replace equities in my portfolio, and and like I put it, and and like, why don't you guys take more risk? And you go like, I don't want to take, I don't want to take like more than fifty percent risk on a sharp ratio. Half you go, that's the problem. So and so now you've got like you've got this issue where your your volatility is too low, your return on cash is bad. Oh, and you've got a massive fee problem. Because it turns out when you do that as well, you have two major issues. When you put 10 of these managers together and you're paying them each, let's, pay, let's just make the math easy once again. You're paying them two and 20 because like, I'm convincing you to just run the sharp ratio half. I pay you two and 20. And, and at the portfolio level, you end up paying 65% of the returns away in fees. Well, why is that? Well, because it, it like, I can run through the math at some point, but it, like, it, it's like, just take my word for it for a second. And, and so that's a massive problem. I got like, man, my fees are too high. Even if I've solved the portfolio construction problem, I'm, I'm paying way more in fees than I want to. My return on cash is terrible. My volatility is too low. What's gone wrong? And the and, and so like the, like the, if you think about the other side of it, you have five, if you had 10 uncorrelated managers, right, each of a sharp ratio half, but imagine they're all under one shop. They're all under one hood, right? Because those first 10, you have what you have a, you have a basket of call options instead of a call option on a basket, right? If the managers had no skill at all, you screwed up, they weren't sharp ratio half, they were sharp ratio zero. They had no skill. You know, at the end of the year, five are up and five are down. And you're paying performance fee to these guys and you don't get it back from these guys. So you're ending up paying 80 basis points a year on expectation and performance fees for no skill, right? Whereas you put them all together, the five go up and the five go down, there's nothing there, you pay no performance fee. And so that, that, that's a big, big, big difference. But like, that's actually not the main difference. The other big difference is that 2% management fee because you're paying management fee per unit of vol. I'm buying 10% yeah. vol with 2% management fee. That's right. Okay, I put those guys together at my portfolio level and paying 2% management fee for 3% vol. So that's not great. If you had those 10 managers under one hood and you were running that thing at 10% vol, that's like each of those managers running at 31% vol because that 31% vol diversifies down to 10 and you're charging two and 20 for that, it's one sixth the fees. It's one sixth the return on cash is half the fees. And, and, and so like, like it, it, it goes without saying that um, a multi-strat where you back, where you put the fees together is an extremely fee and balance sheet efficient way of doing it. If you can get managers to cross, but poor discretionary managers never want to do that. If I, if I make money, I want to get paid. If I lose money, I want to have systematic models. They don't care. And so like, like, like 10 or 20 independent systematic processes under one hood is extraordinarily efficient from a whole ton of reasons. Um, and it also yeah. solves those portfolio construction problems, right? Because the manager who wants to cheap beta in, if you've got 10 models under one hood, you're not going to put a little beta in each one of them and drive the sharp ratio down. Why the hell would you do that? Like, like, so like the thing you've taken where, where you were against your manager, where you had the opposite utility of them, and suddenly you're aligned because, because your manager is portfolio constructed on your behalf, not on their behalf. And so, and so those beta games disappear. Um, like a, a whole bunch of other utilities disappear. So, so I would say like from a portfolio constructed managers is hard, but the extent that you can find managers with multiple processes under one hood, that, that is a, a it's, it's right. a significant this reduction is, from a, from a, from a, this is an incredible, incredible point when, when talking about 
multi-strategy quantitative managers is I don't even like to say that like we have a strategy. I like to say we have a bunch of virtual managers under the hood. Yep. And within we have a bunch of silos that seem to be similar, but even within those silos, we have a bunch of managers that are slightly different trend and momentum managers or whatever. And you're using the efficiency where we're not even trading those independently. We are creating signals. We're aggregating the signals and making one trade for all of them, which is another thing that is really difficult to do when dealing with discretionary managers or independent managers, even if you're using them under a single platform, right? Because you yep. can't necessarily, um, now, or you won't get cooperation. Lots and then each one of those independent quantitative virtual managers are not running at, let's say we're targeting 10 ball. We're not running them at 10 ball each. We're running them at 30, 40 ball, but when put together, they target yep. 10. And That's it goes exactly. on and on and on and on like that, right? That, the efficiency and, and there's, there's, that. there's all sorts of other, like, other, like, yeah, like, yeah. like, so I, wrote, like I said, I wrote a little white paper on this, and, I, and, and it was one of those little like, toss ups I, I gave to presentations at the end. So I didn't like, I thought it was fairly obvious, but it's like, it's, it's, um, it turns out like people, it was pretty, it's pretty well received. But the, um, you know, like, there's, I forgot what I was going to say. I, I lost my train of thought <laughs> Sorry, in the last I interrupted. second. But, uh, no, so it's, this is an, an, an endlessly fascinating thought that the path to go down. I love this idea of, of a basket of call options versus a call on a basket. I wonder, you know, it, it makes in a tremendous amount of intuitive sense. I can see why hedge funds wouldn't want to do it from a business perspective. But I, I also go back to the knockout risk of leverage itself, right? that asking a manager to operate at a higher degree of leverage, which might be good for you, might be inherently bad for the manager. So does it make sense, say, at the allocator level to then say, okay, we're going to lever our book and just allocate more capital to the managers rather than asking the managers to take that leverage risk? It totally would. Totally would. So, so like, look, mathematically identical. I can give you fifty million dollars at twenty ball or hundred million dollars at ten ball. Like obviously, it's a geometric drain difference, but like, like call it like like very very similar. If I want more exposure, I can just give you more. Well, you're paying um, more fees though, then too, right? Like, well, it depends. Like uh, technically, correct the correct fee adjusts for the volatility. <laughs> rate. Like I would say, like you should always adjust your fees Amen. for ball. Like if some if someone's charging two and twenty for twenty ball, they should be charging you know one and ten for ten ball. They should be charging a half and a half and twenty. Sorry, hundred percent. That's exactly ball. how we price. But right. I've yet to see anyone else price the same way. Well, no, I, I literally, I went to conferences where I had managers with, that had two processes with the same fee structure, one and a half the volume. You go, who in their right mind would buy the second one? It's twice as expensive. And the answer is and everyone. They go, they go lots of people. <laughs> the people answer is like, everyone. Yeah. People don't want 20 ball. They want 10 ball because they can go to bed at night and not worry about it. You know? I've had the exact same conversation with Cliff, right? Why don't so, you run this hotter? Because nobody wants it hotter. Yeah, but it's it so out, inefficient. I know, but well, people don't want efficiency. But, but you've got to be clear. Like, like people have like their own personal sense of loss. They also have like their boards. And so, like, look, if you're a manager, and and I know no matter what happens, if I go down fifteen percent, you're going to fire me. I'm never going to let myself go down fifteen percent, mm-hmm. right? And there's a significant cost to that. There's like there's massive cost to to, to fire me when I'm down. Look, once again, let's talk about our sharp ratio half managers for a second. Imagine you had ten sharp ratio half managers, and. Uh, and you had a rule that says when they lose fifteen percent, I'm going to fire them. And they don't do they, and they they don't play games. They just run their constant ten percent fall the entire time. After ten years, you're going to have fired fourteen managers, yeah. just just on noise. The yeah. skill hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. You're just you're like, and, and because the, you should expect peak to troughs of fifteen percent, 
frequently if they if they're not hiding their risk and higher moment risk if they're properly which you want a manager to do you don't want a manager to like to make my nines out of ten and lose eight years worth of money a year you want proper random walk and if they do that and you fire them they go so what they will do so that's a terrible game because when you fire managers early that costs you a ton of money it costs you like I don't know fifty to eighty basis points to fire a manager early why because nothing has changed there's still a sharp ratio half you're going to replace them with another sharp ratio half and that and but what you have is when you fire them is you left the underwater curve behind. Like you left the high watermark. And so, and, and that on average is a drain. And this is assuming you could with zero friction, fire that manager and place them with an equally good one, an equally independent 0.5 that you have like mm -hmm. apparently a staple of them the next day, which you can't. But if you could even like, I mean, like the, the fact is you leave like 50 to 80 basis. So it's like, should I pay you two and 20 or 1.2 and 20? You, you argue that endlessly. But if you fire them early, you're costing yourself that. Like that, if that's your right, process, You can't ask the new manager to reset his high watermark to what you just had. No, of course not. So you leave that behind. That's your first one. Your second one, if your manager knows he's going to get fired and he does play games, then he'll start self-optionalizing. This is also mm -hmm. very costly for an investor, right? For an allocator. And you look at it and you go, the self-optionalization is, look, it's very, very, very hard to force a discretionary manager to take risk when they don't want to. We had this, you know, in, in, in our group of teachers at TAA. It's like, well, it's like, because managers will play games, right? Like, and, 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 and they'll say, I don't see the opportunity right now. You cannot make me take risk when I don't see the opportunity. And and, they, and and so there's a utility conflict because they may it may be December and they want to shut risk down. It, it may be maybe they're underwater a bit and they don't want to take risk. But like if a good trade idea comes along as an allocator, I want you to take that trade, whether you're up ten percent or down ten percent, whether it's January or whether it's December. That's what's right for my portfolio. But you're going like I'm like and and so that's a, that's a real challenge. You cannot make a discretionary guy take risk. But and and so when a manager self optionalizes, well, I'm paying you two and twenty for your for your sharp ratio half a ten percent fall. And you cut your risk in half because you're down seven percent. Well, now I'm like I'm paying two and twenty for five percent ball, and and so if you think about it, like a ten percent ball with like you know let's say there's a sharp ratio half and making five percent and two percent go away to management fees, when they cut the risk in half, sharp ratio half, you know like suddenly there's nothing like there's only fifty basis points left after management fee. So when managers self optionalize, not only do you lose your diversification benefit, I had ten independent point fives and now I don't, that costs you, but also like I'm paying double the management fee at the time. And so that costs another 50 to 60 basis points a year. And so when you look at it, you go like, like these are little small things and you start to see how like how they add up in a portfolio. This is, and I haven't even talked about how hard it is to find independent point fives. But to understand like, 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 like there are a bunch of behavioral uh, challenges as an allocator that, that make, that make that, 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 that introduce these incredible headwinds. And, and oftentimes they're not you, there's like your board member goes, well, you have to fire someone when they're down 50%. Long story short to bring it full circle, there is very few Managers go. I'll run thirty ball, because like, because of course, like, 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 unless unless you go, we're cool if you're losing fifty. Like, like. Well, uh, what's yeah. what's a nine? What what is what is it that at a, a fifth a five a point five sharp? What is the probability of a fifty percent drawdown? Right, it's massive. At what vol? I, I twenty uh, ball. Ten ball. A twenty a thirty ball. Sorry, which is the uh, example. Peak, I, was peak, right? I, wouldn't, like, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say it's that high. Uh, so, so you, you think of the S and P as a 0.5, and it does 50 all the time. But the key feature of the S and P is it's got non-constant volatility. So, the, it, it gets to those 50 percent drawdowns right. because it does it at 30 or 40 percent ball when it's when it's when it's going horrendous. Uh, you can call that a five sigma pull over the course of a year. Uh, not super likely if if they're properly normal and random walk. But like, but like, but you, but you're right. Like, I think the the, the 1.5 sigma pulls will happen every two to three years, yeah. and that's 15 percent. And so you're firing people. On, on what you and so this is like this is the other thing and like we are now in this like like, like we're six weeks in 
and we have entered the roller coaster, right? Because this is like it's it, and it's unfortunate because because you wish that that like you know this this isn't the way it goes. But you, you, you mean your of, strategy? Our, our, like six our weeks plan, into like, your strategy, yeah. six weeks into our strategy of, of you know live trading, and, and and you go, this is um, uh, it's tricky because you're processed. If you have a if you're trying to get a sharp ratio of one, right, you're expecting to make four basis points a day, right? Four basis points a day is is like is nothing, right? But your market volatility is 70 basis points a day one standard deviation or like you know on bad days it's it's two times that like like once a month and and, and so like you know that's like you know 140 150 basis points you should expect to lose like once a month at least and you go like and and, and so you get a couple of those and, and it, it it is not a statement about the alpha process it is simply a statement about risk like market risk comes it's ferocious it's noisy and it takes a very very long time for the process to prove itself and so like and, and so like like it's just as hard to create a minus sharp one process, this is to create a sharp one process. If you have no alpha, you should expect to decay <laughs> towards zero, right? Unless you're turning. But if, you're, but if your turnover is increased in like massive degree, like a minus one is just as hard as a plus one. A minus two is just as hard as a plus two. Zero alpha is zero returns. Anything like negative and sharp is a market event, is market risk, is liquidity risk, has nothing to do with the process. But it's very, very hard as, as, as an allocator to extract yourself from that statement because, like, because it's like it's hard to to see past the noise. So you, right? because you it takes were acting time. in an allocator role for many years, right? So how did you, did you introduce any sort of decision-making frameworks to A, make the best of your, of, of your managers and maximize the chances you were going to get the most out of your allocations? And then at the broader portfolio level, any sort of decision-making frameworks to get the best out of your team internally? Oh yeah. Okay. So out of managers, first of all, look, if you tell your managers you're going to fire when they're down 10, percent you've, you've introduced so many moral hazards against yourself. Like you have just punished yourself with that statement, and you should expect to say that at 10 percent fall, I should, I, I, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30, but at what point do you challenge the alpha statement? I'm not sure because, like, once again, really big drawdowns have nothing to do with alpha. They are a risk statement, and and and, and whether that's now, if your manager screwed up the risk statement somehow, they went, we are going to do risk this way, and they didn't. That that is a strong conversation. If it happened because something happened in the market. Like in last, like in March of last year, no one screwed up their risk. Like I, an incredibly, almost impossible to predict and like very hard to respond to market event happened very, very quickly. You either had a great two weeks or a terrible two weeks, but like there was very little in between. That is less a statement about you and your risk statement than it is a statement about like, man, every now and then the markets are insane. But if you feel like the manager screwed up their risk, that's like, I, that is a very significant conversation for me. So risk, portfolio, construction, modability, philosophy, style drift, I'm very, very serious about that because I'm really focused on like what you're contributing to my portfolio. Um, the, the way that you can stick with a manager when they do badly is if you actually get to know them as people and get confident and comfortable with their intellectual thought process. Once again, very, very hard with systematic investing because systematic investors cannot give away their code and their secret sauce because then it becomes, it becomes, it becomes useless. So, so at the, at the end of the day, it's like, you have to get comfortable with them as people and their thought processes. And so we would dig into model building philosophy, portfolio construction philosophy, like, like thoughts about parameterization, like, like how do you think about building the model and how do you think about doing it? And then I've got your correlations to know if you're doing something different from me. Um, to what you're willing to tell me about, about thought process, I can get more comfortable with it. Um, but it's the managers who you never really, like there was always like, a, uh, there's a couple of yellow flags that when they lose money, you go, I don't know what to do now. You feel conflicted. And, that's, and this is once again, inherently a challenge of systematic investing because the discretionary guy who told you a story about why they do what they do, he's like, if it didn't work out, you're like, but I got the story. And in fact, if they're still holding on to it, like, like oftentimes they go, well, this thing got cheaper. It's even better now. You know, I lost money and I like it more. 
you're never going to see someone go, hey, the systematic investor lost money and I like it more. And so that, and that's, and that's, that's a difficulty in the space. Um, the, uh, but at the same time, look, quant has had a really rough couple of years. A lot of factions have a rough couple of years because, because, you know, Corey, as you're talking about like that, that imbalance was going this way. The key feature of these guys is they have to be here. They don't get to leave this process. They don't get to leave their constraint box. It's just these guys who get to decide if they want to be there or not. And if, it, if too many of them come to here, they're going to go, no, this is no longer a game I want to play. It will come back down. It has to. These guys will always be here. These guys will, will, will self-equilibrate at some point to the point where there's a decent return on risk. Otherwise, they'll keep leaving. And so, and so like, look, the grand diversifier here who does this most efficiently the best is still going like, to – it will return. Quant will like, absolutely make a comeback. It may never be as good as it was in 2005. It will never be as good as it was in 2005. But it, but it will be good. It will be useful. Like the It'll sharp ratio will be lower than what you saw when it was less crowded, but there will be a positive sharp ratio given the inefficiencies it, that we see. It, it has and to return to that. Various and, and I would say, like, look, nothing right now is going to be as good as it was in 2005. Good luck mm -hmm. buying infrastructure today at 2005 prices or real estate or equities. Or Private like, or equity. Anything, anything. Or anything. Yeah. Like, like everything is expensive and crowded. Um, and so, and so like, I think that's a, look, it's, it's everyone's problem, but yeah. so, so, cause I want to go back to continue on that thread of decision-making cause you know, what you were, the way you were answering that question is, uh, managers decisions that they make, but we had a conversation offline about, we just had Annie Duke. Uh, we're just talking about how do you create within a large organization, a better decision-making process. And I would love for you to tell a story about the framework that you and the team came up with and then what the consequence of putting that framework together was. Sure. So, um, so when, when um, it, I guess at the end of 2015, when, when they created this new group, portfolio construction group of teachers, and, and I was head of asset allocation and portfolio management, which ultimately was responsible for like, and we were trying to figure out, well, we're going to re, like, we're going to try to like, rethink total fund portfolio construction. Like we're t and, and everything to do with asset mix, stock bond, commodity, factor exposure, like hedging, alpha, beta, liquidity, liquid, um, and, 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 you know, active budgets to the departments. And we have to think about this. And, and, and at the end of the day, we kind of went like, look, how, and this was just my thought process, but it was like how, like there's so many like incredibly smart people at teachers. And, 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 and right now, like my very first committee meeting and, the, and the, you had all these committee meetings and, 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 and this is just kind of the way like, like a bunch of investors will tend to get together. Like here's how a typical committee meeting goes. It's, a, it's like, a, it's like a, a, an FX committee or an EM committee and they get together and someone promotes like pitches something and there's 15 people in the room because a lot of people want to get involved in total fund, which is fantastic because like it's great that people are like, you know, like, like, like wanting to get involved and want to contribute. And so you have 15 people in the room and someone pitches something. There's a bit of discussion. Some questions are asked and then there's a vote. And I just couldn't help but think, like I, I, you know, I read Tetlock's book, I, I thought about it a bit, and I was like, I couldn't help but think there's got to be a better way, because like there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with this, because like the first time we put something on, 15 people voted, we all approved it, but who but who owned the risk? It's like, well, that was me, I was I was the throat to choke on that decision at the end of the day, and I went like, well, we've got to like like think about this a little bit, because, you know, here here's here's a bunch of the challenges. I got 15 people in the room, but maybe I only heard from two or three people. And, and whenever you have a bunch of people together, it's the noisiest person, which is all, like me most of the time. But like, it's the noisiest person. It's 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 the loudest person. It's 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 seniority. What did the boss say? Um, you know. And so like, there's there, there's a real art to collecting the independent views without contaminating them, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is accountability and ownership. Who owned it? People put this trade on, but at the end of the day, like if it went south, there was a whole bunch of duck and cover, right? And 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 so because because he didn't actually own it. 
and, and didn't feel a sense of ownership and accountability. And, and then the third thing is like, how, how do you get off it? When do you end it? What's the process for that? How timely is that? Do you have these meetings every two weeks and every two weeks, you go, are we still good with this or not? And so I was thinking like, like there's gotta be a better way. And so the way I thought about it was like, can we, can we, can we capture this information in a timely manner with accountability and oversight and alignment? And, 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 and so what we like, you know, spent a lot of time sort of like thinking about and working towards was, was a framework. It's like, what happens if we put like a trading game on people's PC? Right, and this trading game had you had a bunch of assets that you could buy or sell. And if someone pitched a trade, you could add that as an asset. And and basically everyone then come and say, Do I want to buy this or not? So you own it. But here's what had to happen for it to work. You had to have some sense of responsibility and accountability, and you had to care. So as a, people have to get paid on this. You're asking people to take a risk and to put their hand up and contribute to the total fund. But like if this thing, if 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 they went, we should buy stocks versus bonds, or we should buy IG versus high yield, or like those trades, like can we can we can we wait to put them into a system where someone owns that as a bet? But we're not actually putting the bet on because this is the problem because of a bunch of people like credit and a bunch of people like equities they go like maybe i've got too much equity factor at the fund like i don't necessarily want that exposure on i want to put that into a portfolio construction framework and think about like you know what but i have the information captured but the key feature is this if, if one and a half days in someone is like yeah we should be long energy here when i don't like crude anymore they sell it i, I have real time instantaneous feedback of what the person actually believes high quality high quality information high that you quality, may not use time. That I would Timely never get and cost you some money. Timely, independent, and and so this is like I felt this is the way to capture like all of this, like, you know, like like really like like market knowledge in the fund. And, and who wants to put their hand up and play? And a bunch of people did. And it was like juniors and like you now there's there's like a couple problems came up though, which was uh, we couldn't comp people differently. That's a, that's an entire HR discussion, and you know, but like like hopefully they get involved anyway, just because it's it's their job. Uh, but a lot of people went mm, risky and no benefit, maybe not. But a bunch of people still did. Um, the second question was, is it anonymous or not? What happens if I look like an idiot because I got it completely wrong? What happens if I went against my boss and, and, and I got it right and he got it wrong or vice versa? So the question is, do you make it anonymous or not? And that becomes like, yes, you could. And then like, maybe not. I mean, maybe like, you know, anyone who wants to complain, do you let people in back office or in, in, in finance play? Like, sure, I guess, because we're taking signals in. We can wait them however we want. You're capturing information. Like, like maybe ideas come from anywhere. Um, but really, like... <laughs> If I in a weird way, aren't you, aren't you also risking just giving them a free call option if you're going to compensate them on the upside but not penalize them for making bad calls? Like, unless their their job is going to be on the line. It's like, I why mean, wouldn't I just gamble on high-risk plays? Isn't that just investing at a pension plan, though? I mean, like, it's like I, I'm no. going to get in trouble for saying you that. Tell, you like, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but to, to take it away, so, like, so you take the high-risk ones. That was an exact part of it. It's like, well, wouldn't I just take the most volatile thing? It's like, well, of course, I don't want you to do that. So I'm going to, like, give you the unit that you're buying as a vol-targeted unit. Because I don't want you just to, to, to play a high ball versus low. Because yes, you would then take the highest ball thing you could and, 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 and expect on expectation to get paid out. So ball unit targeted, which is a little bit difficult to explain. I don't want you to bet on 100 things. I'm not looking for your portfolio construction. I'm looking for your ideas. So limited number of trades. I don't want the high frequency in and out everyday signals. I want the long-term hold. So we had to charge like a, a significant enough bid ask to make it, you know. And so, yeah, we thought through a, 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 lot, of these, a lot of these challenges and a lot of these problems. And ultimately, we, um, I think we like... <laughs> uh, it, it didn't really fly, and and I think that the main uh, challenge, like, and there was a bunch of challenges. Like I said, there's compensation challenges, there's getting people involved challenges, but like, like, there was also a lot of pushback from senior team, kind of going like, "This is my job. Like, I'm the guy. We're we're the people making these calls. I don't want to have to do what they tell me to do. This is my job." And I think like it was just funny because like I heard Andy Duke say the exact. I was sitting there nodding like he was like it turns out like these these betting processes these if you can make them independent and anonymous you can collect the information and I think this was even better because it was real time and and properly accountable. But if you can do that, um, it it does tend to do very well. But the issue is, is challenges 
an org structure and a sense of authority and a sense of delegated responsibility. And, um, and, and some people are going like, well, why wouldn't you just like, give us the money? We'll trade it in our book. And it's like, well, because I don't know what we want to do at the portfolio level. We're catching information, not necessarily responding. Like, you know, anyway, it, it was, it was a very, I, I thought it was really cool. Uh, I believe the software is still somewhere over there, but, but like, I'm not sure it's being used. So what's odd about it is that it is a tool to help the people higher up to make better decisions that will ultimately help their careers. Right. It's just so short sighted to be like, no, no, no. It's, it's not about proper decision making. It's about ego. That's all I see. Cause you wanted it. You were up there. You were I'm, going to use it. I'm not sure. It's about I, I mean, like I'm, <laughs> well, I know they're, uh, they're probably here watching. I'm sorry, Chris. I, I think I, I, I get that there were, there were, there were a lot of, uh, uh, difficulties with it that, that, that were institutionally challenging. I think is, is, is the way to say it. But like, I, I still think it's a, I think it's a very, very useful idea for if anyone said like, like, this is something we could do in our institution to capture this information. Like, you know, there was also a little bit like, why not put on the dealer's desk and let them contribute as well to like, you know, but, um, you know, like, but people even like kind of raise like, well, what about the conflict of interest? You're paying me and I could be long credit here. Like, can I build a long short arm in my book? And it was like, you, got, you know, it gets very complicated. We get smart people thinking their way through like <laughs> independently paid. The, the best thing is that you've got this process, which hits all of the major, um, like ticks all the boxes in terms of optimal decision-making, right? You're, you're, you're taking the best ideas from Tetlock and the best ideas from, from Annie Duke and all the best decision-making, um, best practices. You put it all together. You've got a really good system and those in charge hate it <laughs> because it compromises their, their position at the firm. And it's not, it's not at all unique. To teachers, I, I'm sure that if you hey, apply hey, it the might same be process, strong, but, it, but, it, but it wasn't to, successful. Right, sure. But if you apply this anywhere, you'd run into the same organizational frictions, right? It's like you've got these fiefdoms. Everyone needs to justify their jobs and justify their incomes. And so it's not just that you've got to have a great decision-making process. You've got to have a great decision-making process that also is, is aligned with the incentives and the structure of the organization, right? So all of these yeah. pieces need to fit together and well, flow. Well, look, and look and I'm not down. like, there, there's basically two types of institutional decision-making frameworks. Like, like there's literally like, can I collect the information and pull it up or is it command down? Like, uh, here's like, I'm helping make a decision, I'm gonna make a decision then you're gonna implement it or I'm trying to draw advice up. I'm a big draw advice up fan, but I, I, I totally respect that there's, there's another side to that. Uh, and I've heard it argued very well many times as well, which is the, uh, you know, command down. So, so let me, let me make sure that we sort of wrap this conversation up with something. There's been a huge amount of, of, um, really interesting content, but like something super practical, right? So, so yeah. circling back to sort of the CIO's dilemma, um, and we recognize, I think, you know, you stated, we certainly agree. The most Adam, optimal I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can you give me one minute? I, I'm, I'm totally sorry. I'll be back in one yeah, minute. Yeah, of course. I'll, yeah, you bet. <laughs> well, look, I'll, I just... <laughs> when, when uh, just leaves. I just want to say... What, what do you do? <laughs> he should have gone to the bathroom before he uh, started the podcast. I told him five times. It's like my child. Um, <laughs> so the one thing that I think is important here, because we get this question all the time as to, well, why, you know, you're a quant, so, you know, I want to know the exact rules that you that you use. And then when you use them, I want to make sure that you're going to continue to use those rules, which is what all these ETFs are, right? Rules-based, decision-making, index, create an index, create a back test, promise a back test, execute, you go flatline for a bunch of years. That, those are seen in the same light as quantitative investors like us that are constantly trying to evolve and improve and move away from the crowd. And they're not the same thing. 
Yeah, but I think that's an important that's an important distinction, and we've been grouped into the same into the same class. But we're really active managers using quants and rules in order to be able to provide pure alpha over time, right? Everything almost, in the investment distribution process makes it difficult for systematic investors to innovate, right? You've, you've got to describe your strategy in great detail in the prospectus and in the fact sheets. Anytime you add new markets or new new um, information sources, you need to amend this, the prospectus. Like it's everything, it, you know, at the, at the index ETF level, if you make changes or you're jeopardizing your passive index status and it's got maybe potential tax consequences, like there's all of these incredible obstacles, which, which is why that there's a trade-off between access and the likelihood of success, right? If something is, is, if you have access to it and you're not an accredited investor with a high level of sophistication, it is much more challenging for the manager of that product to deliver consistent innovation and con and consistently improve their product because of all the headaches and major regulatory obstacles that there are in yeah, front the of them as yeah, a process. Yeah, the is difficult, for, for sure, for sure, for sure. I mean, so it's, it's, yeah. I was just gonna say, I, it almost raises the question of why bother calling yourself a systematic investor anymore, just call yourself a quantitative investor. Yeah. Right? I, I don't know what's I don't know what's a dirtier uh, word. I got to be honest, because when you say quant, yeah. people think people think equity quant. Uh, systematic models. Are, I I would just say like at some point like True. like wouldn't the best thing to be like have some signals, help make some decisions, and just like literally then go and then discretionarily you're an, you're an put them all manager. Yeah. You're an active manager that uses that that uses coding in order to be able to execute which, every which, aspect of that process. But, but I, and I, and that I hate this term, but there's this quantumental term. Uh, which is that oh mixture God. of quant, uh, We just no. had, like our head trader just threw up on the screen right now. <laughs> but I do see that a lot in like the, the volatility space where they're just, they're quantitative investors, but they're not systematic, right? Yep. And and they do draw that distinction. And again, but I, 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 I think I we do ourselves in a corner. I believe in the discipline of systematic investing so much. I do believe in the discipline of the vol targeting of the portfolio construction. of the Like I could not come close to doing what we're doing. 20 ideas, each of which has like, Thousands of subparameters, like you cannot do that. It is but that's in, not. In, in, in I, I would argue it's not. It's not systematic because you're going to evolve it over time. It's quantitative. You are quantitatively enabled. Yes, you're you using. Know, but the day to day there decision making boundaries. There are boundaries between correlation. What you can do with correlations and volatilities, though, right? And, and in order want, to understand I mean, correlations, you can't do it by gut. It is so complex. It's so multi-dimensional and ethereal. Like it's, it's three-dimensional. In a way that you just so you, you use quantitative models. Yeah, I, I look. Uh, we've had like, <laughs> we've had this exact discussion uh, because at the end of the day, there, there's a taint right now on on some terminology, and, and it's very interesting because people ask you like they still want to put you in a box. So so what do you like? What are you? What box are you in? like? Are you, are you trend? Are you, are you convex or are you mean reversion or are you? You know, it's like well no, and they go, well you got to be one or the other. It's like well no. Well then you must have switching. Well yes, of course we do. It's like, well, then what, you know, it's like, and it becomes a very challenging set of questions because they want to know a boxer. And I go like, look at my correlations. If I'm correlated to anything, put me in that box. But I'm pretty sure everyone I've ever sent my correlations to, going like, like my returns are going, like, this doesn't look like anything else that we have. And, and I'm pretty sure it's pretty unique and pretty different. And from that perspective, it's very hard to think what box I belong in because a box shouldn't be a name. This is why like, you know, 
like, like how do you compete with an AQR or two signals? So why am I? Like, is it because you literally say like, because you have like, you both have like a quant or systematic in the name? Because like, there's a universe of difference in the different in the way different people will approach different problems. Like at the end of the day, correlations are, are where the rubber hits the road on whether you're doing the same thing or not. And and yeah. and so like at, at the end of it, different is different. Like and and, and whatever tools that you're disposable to get there. Like at the end, of, like different comes. Not not on the technology use, but from the creativity that you have to get there, and and and, and so like like okay, I've got I got another story. I know you guys are like you're gonna get tired of me very soon, but like like <laughs> there's like I, like like Michael Malbuzit like has this like I love I love his stuff, and and um it, and he like I, there, like there's like, like what do you need like what do you need in, in terms of creativity? Because like I love this analogy. It goes like ants, right? Like like like. You know, ants when they when they they, they wander off and they, they do this like you know they, they they wander around and when they find food, they like they follow their pheromone trail, you know, back and they lay down more pheromones and they harden they harden this trail and the other ants start following that trail and you get this line of ants, and they go it's 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 a very efficient process it's a very efficient search process because like once the food is found like all the ants have a straight line to that food, and the crazy thing is, about ten percent of ants they don't follow that line. They, at some point they go ah I'm going this way and they wander off. And, and the thing is, like, it's so important to have the ant who's wandering off the line. Because if you don't, they all follow the line. And at some point, the food runs out. Like, it turns out it's a very efficient, hairy search process where, like, a lot of those ants who wander off, they don't find anything. But you need the ants who at I'll some point you- the line go, like, I don't want to follow this line anymore. I want to do something different because that's how you, like, that's how you stop following the line. And, like, and the worst case scenario is called a death spiral. The ants will, will like, start following each other in a circle. And, like, literally all the ants are following each other. They go in the circle. They go in the circle. And they keep going in the circle until they literally, like, starve to death. It's like you need, Chris, I'll one, you I'll, I'll one up your, your sorry, you're, not the you one up your institution add, to get the, in, into the into the, the death spiral. I'll add a little. I'll add a little color to your story there. It's not just ten percent. The more uncertain the terrain, the yeah. greater the number of ants that peel off. I, I, I read a study today, so I was trying to catch up on it. And it's like different ants have a different propensity to peeling off. But yeah, like that's exactly. It's and I find that so cool because it's like, yes, this is exactly what you need. Like you need like the annoying idiots who challenge status quo. Because, like as frustrating and annoying as they are, but you, you, you have to. And, and so this is where it's like, you know, cross-discipline is, is, is so helpful from this perspective because like I think you can challenge the status quo a lot if you, if you, if you come from the outside in. You know, if, you, if you're trained in a certain way of thinking, like I think already you're kind of caught in the rut to a certain degree. And like, I don't know, I have that trend following. Uh, you know, we yeah, talked yeah, about the trend, the but, trend like, following. Like, I, I mean, this is like, this you is like where I just think like, I was uh, coming at the trend following story. I was coming at it circuitously. Uh, so I was we're going like straight I, at two hours here. <laughs> I, I asked you before about yeah. the CIO's dilemma, right? So yeah. I was going to go into, so you sort of start with global risk parity, right? As kind of the core. And then you, um, you scale it to the appropriate level of all, which has its own problems, right? Which we've discussed. And then you, you bolt on some, some alts. So, what are the alts that have the the greatest um, propensity to scale well? Like, what can what can virtually every institution bolt on? And then, like, let's let's sort of go down the the capacity spiral, right? So let's let's start bolting on different potential sleeves of alts, and then you know see if we can put a viable kind of portfolio uh, framework together for CIOs here. Sure. So uh, I feel like like we, we let each other by the nose to this one, but like, like obviously I think the first and most important one is trend following. Like it's got it's got a ton of uh, features that I think over time make it very advantageous. And and one of them is it's like, look, 
like when we first launched our CTA at Teachers in like I don't know 2004-2005, trend following was like out of fashion. By 2007, I think I think we fired all of our trend followers like externally, and we were like like still arguing that this is important. And 2008 comes along, and I was like, man, I you wish you had more trend following. So hold on, I just want to make sure that we stop and describe what you mean by trend following, because there's okay. a meaningful proportion of the people that are listening who think trend following is, you know, timing the S and P, right? So that's not what we're describing. We're talking about you know, 60, 70, 80 markets, long, short trend following with risk management and, you know, a, a appropriate portfolio construction, like it, right. When a high I say, quality, diversified CTA type strategy. That's right. When I say CTA and, 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 yeah. and probably like now it's like pretty well understood that you have to risk target properly. You have to, um, you have to have an ensemble approach. You probably have to have multiple parameters, probably multiple techniques. And like, and so I think it's like, like, I think like, like trend following is probably done pretty well right now as a, as a, as a thing. Um, and, and it gets, it got crowded too. Like everything got kind of crowded, but at the same time, like, well, I mean, it didn't do well for quite a while. People started to pull out of it and it's, it's literally in the middle of it's like best six months. Well, 2014 was amazing because it got crowded. But like, but like, like every now and then you, man, you wish you had some more trend following, but there's like other aspects to it that I really like, like trend following. You can think of it as you take trend following and slap on the risk parity. And now you have enhanced risk parity. You have risk parity with stops. Well, that man, that looks good. If you ever want to like build like a, a nice back test, you know, go, long and out stocks and bonds and then get long short commodities and go like and like that that like you know makes yourself better and like go because trend following like has been around for 30 or 40 years and it's the original risk parity like like risk parity is a pretty new concept but like trend following was equal weight by volatility stocks bonds commodities fx and you put that thing together and you go like like and hey the other thing about trend following is it tends to sit long the risk premium side of things like trends if things tend to go up trends tend to follow it and you stop out when it's falling like call that a risk reduction if you want not even an alpha call. It's like pull out when it's not doing well. You can scale the amount of that you want. Now you have a long process with ball targeting and some stops. You go, that actually helps a ton. And so like, like trend following is just so naturally complementary to the, the typical institutional portfolio. And man, if anyone's lacking something in their, in their portfolio right now, it's probably commodity exposure. Oh, I know the commodities have been like the terrible child of the last two days, but, but just to say like, like, you know, like, but over time, uh, uh, trend draw draw on this piece of paper where commodities hurt you. Like, <laughs> they hurt me, and, and then and then they help you. But at the end of the day, I, uh, but you know, it's 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 uh, you know. But if you look at trend following, you go like, what is it? It's like like uh, uh, you know, inflation risk is a very very significant risk to everyone's institutional portfolio because like inflation still hits stocks and bonds, and everyone's got stocks and bonds, and and so. Um, you know, with trend following doesn't cover all sorts of inflation. I know we talked about this like last time. We said like, you know, we built, we kind of went, what is inflation? There is no, is it, is it monetary inflation? Is, is it exactly. CPI? Yeah. Is it commodity price inflation? Is it demand side? Is it, is it wartime supply inflation? Like, like at the end of the day, like, like, is it COVID supply chain inflation? Like we have like lots of different definitions of inflation and there's not really necessarily one way to capture it. And so we went like, we don't know how to cover inflation. So we're going to build a basket of things to try and capture it. So it's going to be a mixture of tips uh, of, of, um, you know, break evens, which is a kind of real return bond over, over nominal bond, uh, you know, commodities, gold, different ways that you can think about trying to capture this because we're not actually, we don't care about inflation per se. Like really, like what you care about is that, is that, you know, that unexpected changes of inflation. Just let me get that. I keep getting this wrong. Changes in expectation of inflation <laughs> is what moves the price of assets. Right. And, and, and like, this is key. Once again, it's what people think. It's, 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 what's, it's, what, it's how people change their views relative to what their views were before that, that moves prices of things. And so when people have an expectation of inflation, they change their expectation of inflation due to whatever, the news of the Fed or like whatever is going on, um, they will respond. And, and, and the problem is when you expect inflation to be higher, 
the implications are pretty bad for most of the assets in your portfolio. And whether it's because the assets themselves, that everyone goes like, well, equity is a real price. It's like, well, everything, everything on this planet is real priced. Like if something, if something didn't have a, a real pricing power, it would go to zero because inflation goes up over time. Every single asset on the planet is real pricing. The question is, does it tend to make more money or less money when you have an inflationary shock? And in that case, there's very few things that actually are actually like inflation hedges. Mm -hmm. And so like, like a, a, a tip, a one-year bond, a one-year bond is, is an incredible inflation hedge from one perspective because you go like inflation comes in higher than expected. Next year, what does it do? It does its absolute best to price itself at exactly the price it needs to to respond to that inflation that just happened. Like nothing responds faster to inflation than a one-year bond. It is like literally the best. You go like an equity is not even that. An equity is a series of cash flows. And equity is like, imagine you have a series of one-year cash flows, like a series of one-year bonds, like one-year bond forward. And you go like, what happens in inflation? Well, inflation, like you lose money in that first year, like you do with a one-year bond. But then because it turns out you had a, a cost shock and, you, and it takes a while for you to pass it on and, 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 and you, you try and raise the price, but then people are going to like buy less. And so you take a bit of a hit, but the expectation is you can get it back over time. Well, guess what? If you do a rolled process of one-year bonds, you take a hit in your first year, but your next year's pay you back. It's a very, very similar concept. Like everything is real priced. Real estate, like everything is. And so the real question is how quickly does it respond to an inflation shock? And the problem is most things respond negatively at first. And then over time, we'll catch up. Um, commodities, if the inflation shock comes from the commodities, are obviously a very, very strong right. natural hedge. It's a direct, the inflation shock. It's it's a direct and, uh, it's, Also, it's with the financialization of, of commodities, it ends up being a, a, preempt, a preemptive hedge, right? Capital flows to commodities in anticipation of the well, potential exactly. of an inflation shock. And Change that actually may end up creating. Yeah. Could, absolutely. So, 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 and, and, and maybe it gets ahead of itself and has to come back a bit because, because like, obviously we've had some big moves in commodities recently. Um, but like I said, it's like trend following captures that. And so why do, like, why do commodities trend? Like why should yeah, we expect we them go. to trend? You're like, God damn it. Cause you take a long time to get to point. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So this is like, look, Behaviorally speaking, you can say lots of reasons why people trend. And again, a lot of the, that synchronicity or like a flow of information I want to do, other people are doing it. There's, there's a lot of arguments you can make for trend following. Um, but I think there's one, and this is like when I first, and I, and I think like, like, man, the economists just get this wrong. And they get it wrong so badly. And you hear, and you hear this all the time. And you, and you kind of go like, because like they'll, they'll look at this world in, in a deterministic sense. So they look at it and they say like, what's our supply? What's our demand? We have this much crude. We have this much demand for crude. The price should be here. Here's the market clearing price. It should be this. And anything other than that is like speculators causing volatility. You're like, that's maybe, but, but like the thing is like when I, like I would say, once again, coming from cross discipline, you know, when I first started, like, like, like and I did actuarial science. And so one of the courses I took was operational research and, and, and they, and they had this, like, like, I thought it was a really cool course on the theory behind how lines are formed, right? It's called queuing theory. And, and so like, there's some takeaways, like, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's more efficient, um, you know, to have four lines to fork, like, so do you have, do you have four lines to four cashiers or do you have one long line that, that splits off to the four? You know, it's, it's always better to have one line that splits off to the four because the expectation is the same, but there's way less standard deviation. You can get in the slow line or the fast line and wait longer, wait less and like, like same expected return, but less risk. And you're like, yeah, you should always have one queue. And you that's kind of like, you know, that was a takeaway of queuing theory. Um, but, but like the one that really kind of struck me was the, you can model the distribution of risk. And I know that like, you know, uh, I seem to leave, but like he talks about this all the time. It's like people always think everything is a normal distribution. And, and in many cases, and, and everyone always thinks normal distribution. Like when we're, when we're pricing volatility commodities, we think normal distribution. We go like, where, where can it go? What is the range of possible outcomes? And you go, well, I don't know, it's 20% ball. And I think, I think this, and you go, and it gets it completely wrong. And it gets it completely wrong because it misses like a very, very important dynamic in the market, which is, you know, if you think about a cashier, 
This is like a one queue, one, one lineup. And a cashier can handle one person a minute. You go, that's great. Like one, like one person shows up every minute, and it takes me a minute to deal with them, and I'll never have a line. So people show up every minute, and I take a minute to burn through them, and I never have a line. And, and that's true. So you, so like, you call it like equilibrium, no line. And so you call it the clearing price. And, 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 and if anyone shows up, like, like you know, it takes longer than a minute to show up, there'll never be a line. If they show up anything less than a minute, the line will go infinitely long. So, so but you say like, there's a clearing price. And now you go, okay, All right, let's say we clear. Let's say we go, like, we can handle one person per minute, and one person per minute shows up. And, and now you can say, like, let's say we introduce a little bit of stochastic nature to it, so a little bit of like randomness to the arrival price. So it's still on average one person per minute, but let's see what that, how that changes the system. And the answer is it completely, completely changes the distribution of how long you should expect to wait in a line. Because what, what you find out is like, okay, so you show up and, and maybe like, you know, someone shows up and then a minute and a half later someone shows up and a minute and a half later someone shows up, no line still. And then suddenly someone shows up and 30 seconds later someone shows and 30 seconds later someone shows. And now the second person's waiting 30 seconds, the next person's waiting a minute and a half, and if someone else shows, because it only burns down at one person per minute. And so this line, it builds up quickly and it burns down. And, and so every now and then it goes, it gets really, really fat tailed. And then it burns down and then it sits empty. And most of the time it's empty. And this is a system that completely clears, but suddenly it's got a line like 10% of the time. And some, sometimes that line is like, gets quite long. And they go, okay, let's, let's deduce another source of stochastic noise. The cashier on average takes a minute, but sometimes takes 30 seconds, sometimes it takes a minute and a half. And right, so you model this whole thing with Poisson distributions, with exponential windows for arrival times, and you, and you model it all, and, there's a, and there's, a, there's a distribution that gets created. Because now, sometimes people show up, like three people show up in a minute, and sometimes it takes three minutes to do someone, and suddenly this line can get really, really long. And, and that's just, that's like a system that clears. It clears perfectly, supply and demand match. But, but, but at the end of the day, just through some randomness of supply and demand, like, like you know, noise, you get these incredibly long lines. And so like, what, like clearly the analogy to commodities is you never get a line, you get a price. You get like, how much do I have to pay? And like, if I really need this thing, how much am I gonna pay to get there? And you'll see that, that like most of the time it clears and sometimes it's empty and the price gets very, very low and occasionally it goes way further than you think it does because it's not normal. There's nothing normal about that distribution. It's a very, very, very fat tailed distribution. And so you go like, why did the price of sugar go from two to 20 and then back to two? You know, and it's like, well, it's because, it's, it's because there's a stochastic noise this thing and there's no way to introduce new cues quickly right and and so if you could introduce like, as many cues as you need to and take them away as quickly as possible then there'd be no problem but the fact is like there's a stickiness to have, it takes a while to build a new mine or to grow a new field and sometimes you have nothing you can do about it and and at the same time like you know like all the the vagaries of, of, of demand side where it's like if the price of this gets cheaper i'm going to like move over here and like and so like at the end of the day like the, the main takeaway is like commodities kind of have to trend they have to occasionally because because the underlying like process is so completely nonlinear. Yeah, the and markets can be can can clear can be efficient long term while also creating these non-normal distributions that allow for trend following or like, any and, uh, many other phenomena. I imagine. Yeah, and and, and queuing theory goes like it goes because it goes into operations research, which is like now you've got five machines. This queue goes into this queue goes into this queue goes into this queue, and how do you make that thing efficient? And, and, and it gets very very. And of course, supply chain is that. It's not one into one into one. It's a whole series of these things. And you realize that like, like it, it can be right and it can be right most of the time. And it's, it's a very fragile system and occasionally it goes off a little bit because of like randomness. And, and, then, and then you can get these really, really big price moves because people need that thing. And if you need that thing, you'll wait a long time in line or you'll pay a, lot, like a high price for it. And, and, so it's a, and, and so from that, and the thing is like the key features, it's only commodities that have that effect as far as I can tell because, because everything else 
you can perfectly fungibly trade the future for today. I, I can I can trade a, a future S and P for today S and P, and the only difference is the risk free rate. I can infinitely create new queues. Whereas commodities, like I literally, if I need it right now, there's nothing else I can do but to pay up for it. So, so it's I think it's a very particular commodity specific dynamic. And so I'd say <laughs> there's going to be one thing I would try and follow commodities. But the problem is, as a CIO, is that there's not that much liquidity in commodities. There's only so much. Like, like, like there's there's five or six that have enough liquidity. Uh, and there's, uh, but I would say of like the 20, 25, like most liquid commodities, if you're, if you're like a $200 billion pension plan, there's just not enough for you. They're like, they're literally like, like, that's right. You, like, you're out, you're, you're out of luck. You're out of luck. Mm -hmm. You cannot hedge your commodity risk. And so you come at it different ways. You come at it with natural resources, infrastructure that might have some, you know, like, like peripheral exposure. You might try and buy mining stocks, but they got that equity risk. And it's like clean, clean, clean commodity exposure is very hard to come by if you're a big plan. This is one of those. Well, like, this is one of those areas. And I always talk about this when you're a smaller pension plan, if you're a smaller institution, if you're high net worth, you have a very, very significant advantage over the big plans, and you don't have many advantages over the big plans. But this is absolutely one of them. But there's a bunch of things that you can do that they can't. And Mike, like, like I said, in life, always take advantage of your competitive advantages. And, and yet, everybody wants to mimic the big plans, right? Oh, I, you know, I want to, I want to run my portfolio like the big pension plans. Why? Why would you do that? They're full of constraints. That's why we ran our masterclass and specifically targeted solutions for those with less than $10 billion to allocate. Yep. Because once you get above that level, you are so limited in the solutions that you can bring to bear that there's not really a lot of differentiation that you can bring in, to In table. liquid capital it's, it's markets, like it's, it's yeah. very, yeah. very hard to suck enough money out of liquid capital markets to feed a $200 billion machine. That being said, and this is why you can see like these big plans going towards privates, like there's massive capacity I'm still struggling with the buy high, sell higher, markup. Is that alpha or not? Question. You know, like uh, you know that 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 thing that you bought five years ago and the cash flows haven't changed and you're just paying more for it. Uh, yes, you've made money. You got there early and someone else was willing to pay more for you than the same thing. And as long as, but if you went and bought another thing at that new price, I don't think you're ahead necessarily. But but if you but you know if you can sell and get out of the market, but the question is like, do you, do you exit completely and try and come back in later? No, it's I don't like know it's like that. owning a home in a in a certain market, right? Your family's yeah. there, your friends are there, the home price goes up in value. You think you're wealthier, but you're not really unless you're going to move to someplace that's substantially cheaper, right? Yeah, but you, like, in, in this world, like this, and like look, to, not to get back to the moral hazard trade, but like this is the problem with the Fed doing what they're doing, with the discount rate they're doing, with inflation doing what it's doing, is that it's completely disproportional. It, it's not. It's uneven. Because yes, you don't feel any wealthier because you're not. You've got the same house you had, but the person entering the market is screwed because like they exactly. literally. And that's where you go. And this is where the Reddit army, Bitcoin. Just, I know you guys love Bitcoin, so I'm not going to get too like too deep in this one. But like they, I feel these are these are intergenerational wealth transfers trying to bring money back, and I, and I think they should, because at a certain extent, like they, like the boomers have uh, made this. Well, it's very, a hail mary. Very, very unfair for for, exactly. for for most investors. But anyway, that's that's an aside. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, anyone else want to go anywhere else? This we're ten minutes past two hours, and I, well, I, I know we need to have the Schindler part two. In conclusion, <laughs> what you're saying is I should try and follow the most illiquid crypto. Yeah, that's that's my takeaway. That's where I'm going with this. Crypto is uh, a perfect. It's a perfect edge, market to, to, like that yeah. shows this, right? You have not advice. Not advice. <laughs> no, but just just generally from a structural barrier to entry perspective, there is a lot more opportunity for alpha in crypto in low AUM amounts than you do have in liquid markets. The traditional um, sure. I mean, I, the only thing I would say about crypto is it's like it's just very, very, very high volatility. You could also probably go after 100% fall in crude 
But, but yeah, you, but you can't. But the leverage issue comes in there, right? Like nobody's going to yeah, give you that much leverage. Very, but then you should also be very, very careful with that amount of leverage. Is is my like is my only point. Right. But like I, I like I um yeah, crypto not my thing. Like and, and not my thing is not like I'm negative, just more like I don't know it. And, and, there's, I, and, I, and there's and a great probably, question in the in the chat here uh, for you, Chris. Book recommendations. Oh, um, interesting. So I am. Um, I, I, I'm going to circle back on. So I haven't read like good investing book in in a, in a little in in probably two or three years. Like I said, I love that Michael Lewis. Like I I only think about like the ten or so books that like I really loved, and I'll send that out. Like I've been reading we'll send like you Corey's book later. I have been reading like sci-fi recently because like it's like I like I love this like what if question of sci-fi as opposed to like what was through someone else's lens. Like I'm a big you know like like that that like I you I, like, and me both, be, brother. What what are you reading? Um. Uh, like the Neil Stevenson, Adrian, uh, like like the Dan Simmons, like like Adrian, yeah. uh, like uh, uh, N.K. Jemison, like I like like the like the like the fifth season. I thought that stuff was great. I read Three Body Problem. Like I I I kind of like the, that's right. We finally uh, found somebody that loves a Three Body Problem. <laughs> I, I don't like so I didn't love it, <laughs> but I read it. I, I gotta say, like I thought I thought it, I thought it interesting. Well, we're gonna we're gonna delete that later. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I thought it was very interesting. But like I like and like and like and if I said like podcasts I love listening to like I I would recommend to anyone to listen to Dan Carlin's like hardcore history I think that is like the most phenomenal oh, podcast and and I think like like the coolest thing about that is like like humans are humans are humans are humans are humans and if we're talking about behavioral psychology we're talking about like 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 culture and the implications of culture and how you act it's like like the crazy thing is like no matter like two thousand years ago or a thousand years ago or three thousand years ago it's like humans are humans but the culture dictates so much of the actions to such incredible consequences. And it's just really interesting to see and to see how people react and move like in the culture that's created for them at that time. And, and like the crazy implications of like, you know, what is it, what did it really mean for like, like the first voting States in, in, in Greece to like, like one of the, like, like, you know, when Athens first voted against like, 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 like to go to war with the Persians, it's like, Oh my God, they were like, that was like the worst decision ever. And it happened to work out because of like like a couple things that like saved them, but like like the Persians would like have absolutely like murdered them, and and it was just one of those like, well, we're, hey, we're like we're a democracy, and like and like why not? Let's let's take a like a fling on this. And you realize that like you know Julius Caesar, like a lot of like a lot of his like campaign was because he was like an in debt, I don't know, like like needed to go like like the resource at the time was slaves, but like you know he was like it's like like the like the, the motivations and the factors in the story. Like, I think I think he's extraordinary. Um, so anyway, just to say like uh, that's all right. That's uh, right. Yeah, but um, I, I'm not like I have to be honest. I I am so buried in finance, full time, day to day, and I haven't found the book that like maybe I should write it. I don't know that explains like my thought processes cleanly. Like you know, Anti Elements book on expected returns is obviously like I, I think like absolutely worth reading. Um, but like you know, there's ten thousand books on portfolio construction. They're probably all quite good. But I think they're all missing the most important point, which is like how much risk to take. And we'll get into that in a different podcast because this is like this is a long and important discussion. Um, All right. Well, let's let's yeah, tie yeah. a couple of um, close a couple of loops. So um, you got you got twenty one strategies. How do you allocate to them? Is like one twenty one at one twenty first in each, or how do you think about it? Uh, like mostly. So I would say like like we, we we start we start with that because like look if something back tests like they all back test about as good as a C tier like a sharp of one roughly or a bit better, um, you know. But then you take into account like if there's any kind of big turnover differences. Um, if, if there's any breadth differences, like most of them play all the assets, what happens if one of them is commodity only and you take that in consideration. Um, if, if, uh, yeah, I think I, I would say like, like ultimately like, like turnover and breadth are the two that kind of make you pull back on some that aren't as good. A, a couple of them 
correlate with each other at like a point two or point three, which bugs me because like anything above that, I'll say it's one thing, throw them together. Um, you know, two or three point twos. This is a, uh, you know, this is like, once again, the correlation thing. It's like, you know, how many point twos before you've like, before they're not independent and you've actually got, you know, the answer is like, it's a point three and like suddenly like three become two. But like, but at the end of the day, like there's a couple and, and, and the, um, the bigger challenge is not like the signals themselves, you know, you can run independently, but they're not independent things. They're not like, hey, here's 20 managers doing their own thing. What they are is 20 sets of inputs into what do I want to do with the S&P today, right? And so, like, like, and, and so at any given point in time, like your signal in the S&P is absolutely continuous. It's rising and it's falling as these things are, are saying, I want more or less, and, and they're voting. Um, and then you've got other things coming into account, like which is your, like your ball targeting, your beta neutralization, like all of those pieces, all the different betas that you have in there like, are, are, are also adjusting your S&P. So all that's working together. Um, when you say with these guys, like if you let them run as independents, like the real risk is that every, like even if they're on average independent, every now and then, like three or four of them will be like all leaning the same way or six or seven leaning the same way. And suddenly you go like at my portfolio level, I want 20 independent bets. I don't want one concentrated short bond bet or long equity bet or short trend following bet. Like, because that, that like I want 20 independent things, not one thing. And so like the key, like, like and I think like the secret sauce and the, probably the most important feature is like, how do I respond to that without destroying the alpha signal, which is like when things, when you want more of that thing, you want more of that thing, but at what point does it become too much of that thing? And, and you have to start pulling back on it because it becomes a contagion. Like there's a cancer and you want like, you want to kill it out. Um, and so the, the portfolio construction and risk and beta neutralization uh, is everything I would say. So, so, it, or it's so much of it. it it's, and your it's beta such- neutralizing risk parity, um, beta and trend following beta, right? Um, I am, I'm sorry, I just got a comment for somebody. Okay. I am, uh, beta neutralizing, uh, naturally by signal generation, you do your absolute best to make the thing beta neutral when you generate Like, so, so you say, when you build a model, you want to make sure that the signals themselves on average, like are zero. Like, and so like, you know, it's like, like, like my equity on average is zero. My bonds on average and every single asset on average is zero. But even then, that doesn't get you beta neutral necessarily because you might be long and high vol and short and lower vol regimes. Like you might end up with some residual beta, but you do your best at the single generation piece, and you do like you do their best at like for all the betas at the single generation piece. And then you look at like all of those guys together, and you go, now what is my residual beta that's left over? Because there's always some beta left over. Like, I, like when we we're doing equity quant teachers, we built like like to the best of our ability beta neutral quant. You know, how do you do it? It's like well, if I have a, a Canadian, you know, quant factor, I would beta neutralize to the Canadian market. Right, okay, okay, that's alpha. It's uncorrelated to the Canadian market. But if I check that alpha and check this correlation to like other markets, like I would forty percent correlate the S and P five hundred, and twenty percent correlate the FTSE. It's like, well, why? Because the Canadian market is itself like, completely concentrated in like idiosyncratic thing. And so, and so you go, I got to beta neutralize to everything. And then you go, like, and the same thing if I beta neutralize S and P five hundred, S and P five hundred, I still might have some correlation to like. And so, like, betas like they stick around. And so you've got to like you handle them where you can, and then you look at the entire system and you handle them again. And then you can handle them in lots of different ways, right? You can handle them, you know, backwards looking or forwards looking and, and like different levels of responsiveness. And, and, and a lot of that has to do with like, am I leaning against the signal or am I trying to, like, am I trying to demean a long thing? Or am I trying to lean against when it gets too big? And like, like I said, there's some art and science to it all. Um, but at the end of the day, the real goal is to try and be as uncorrelated as possible to everything. While still, Corey, having your positive returns, obviously, because without the positive returns, I would say the lack of correlation is uh, less than useful. And then finally, do you have any expectation that your strategies are going to run their course, right? That there's either crowding or some other phenomenon is going to um, drive the expected alpha to zero at some point? I mean, absolutely. And, and I think there's two bits to this. The first one is 
I think the themes may still persist for quite a while because I think there's always, like I said, it's the same thing. Like these guys are here, but the question is like how to capture them. Is it, do you have to get faster? Do you have to get more reactive? Do you have to be more on top of the beta changes? And the answer is like, yes, 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 yes. Because even if those ideas are there, like the, 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 like the market is constantly changing. And so even if the idea can still be captured, the parameterization to do it has to be adaptive and dynamic. And so we have a bunch of models which are, which are constantly trying to find, you know, not like one sample look back, what would it have been, but like how do I constantly try and figure out what, like what, the, what it should be right now? Um, there's, um, but like, I mean, like, oh, this is why I'm like so excited to do this. Like, I, I, I love, like, like, you know, like, I, like when someone builds a house and you go, like, like they look at it, like, I tangibly built a thing. Like, that's like, that's like the pleasure of like physically building something. Like, I get that pleasure out of building a new model or building. Like, like I love researching and discovering. I love the process. Like, I, yes, I'd love to keep going on this. Like, you're constantly trying to like push to the right side of the curve and and and, and add new new things. Then I think we should take Jason Buck's advice on earlier on that we should just call ourselves discretionary alpha managers. This is exactly what we're doing. Why are we dealing with this quant systematic BS? Let's just say we're, we're discretionary managers trying to constantly find alpha. Maybe we'll be taken seriously then. Yeah. I mean, like the, um, like I said, the challenge we have is that it's so replicatable. Someone leaves with your code, then someone else can do it, and someone else can do it, and someone else can do it, and suddenly, like, and then alpha disappears. And so, and alpha disappears really fast. Every good idea, it's. But how is that? Isn't that the same thing as a discretionary manager? Once he kind of gives away his model, it's the same thing. Like, no, no, no. Think no, about tiger funds. The tiger, the the baby, the baby cubs, or the cub tiger, no, whatever they're called. They, they, they were they were systematic. Like, 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 like if, you, if you're a discretionary manager and I say, here's the trade I'm doing, I'm buying bonds and selling China. What am I doing next month? Good luck. Like, like you have no idea what I'm doing. Like that, that's the beauty. I can tell you the entire trade and the entire thought process and you get one for free. You know, it's like. I think that's true if, if it's yeah. an open enough universe for a discretionary manager. But when you, I mean, the number of discretionary equity managers I look at that have an identical funnel right? It's that upside down triangle that goes, here's our universe. And then we're going to screen on quality and screen on profitability and valuation. And then we end up with our portfolio. And by the way, they have to do that because all the allocators are trying to put them in a very defined box from a risk perspective. So they end up, it, I mean, again, that's why you can explain so many managers with these primary characteristics and very few of them actually deliver any alpha at the end of the day. You've got these these agency problems, and yep, I, I, yeah. So I don't, I don't disagree at all. I mean, and like look, someone's someone's going to argue, someone smarter than me is going to argue that like everything is a risk premium. There's no such thing as alpha. If anything persistently makes money, like they're probably sitting on. They're either like systematically capturing or discretionarily heuristically capturing something um, persistent. Maybe maybe not, but but like you can like I'm like. There is a discretionary point to what we're doing because every single decision that we make is a discretionary decision that just happens to be exactly. made ahead of time. Like every single thing we do is a discretionary, which is why you're investing in the person. You're not exactly. like you're, you have because you have to buy into the thought process, the intelligence, the creativity, the integrity. That the, the like like because and the integrity is like 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 it's so easy to cheat yourself in this space, and everyone does it a bit. There's no way not to a little bit, but the question is, is like, am I cheating myself? You got to be very, very careful with that. Eyes wide open. What am I like? How? What? What am I like? How am I trying to build the best, best thing possible? And how do I? How do I defend myself against that? 
is, is the first question. The second question is, am I cheating you? Which is like, I, I can't, like one of the things that we had the pleasure of doing over and over again was getting dealer products produced to us. And we were probably the only team in the world that would go like, oh, you're, you're pitching a trade to us. Let, let's, let's, let's just check it. Love let's build it ourselves. And <laughs> I've already told this story, so I'll give like the quick version. But Maybe like, to me privately, I can't remember anymore. Yeah. Okay. So we would like, we would, we would, we would reverse, like, we'd, like when a dealer said like, Hey, here's, here's, like, here's a process. We would, we would test it. And, and, and the thing is like, they were like, and the dealers have gotten better with their product, I think over time, but like, like they were never that good because the problem is you have this agent management mismatch, right? Which is the, um, and, and I, especially the challenge was early on is where like, like when you're dealing, when you're selling a swap that has no performance fee and just management fee, like obviously all you care about is selling as much of it as possible, not necessarily how well it does. And if it doesn't do badly, you, if it does really terribly, you can like roll it around, start a new one, and, and you know your sales team will sell that one. And so like, like and so what performance fee is so important is because you've got to eat your cooking in some way. And 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 like, we like, I remember one in particular. And this is one of the jiggers probably like, like, you know, like we had a, a sharp ratio of two presented to us. And uh, and we went, oh, we're gonna like test it. What assets? And, and then the second we said we're gonna test it, they like they came back and they said, yeah, it's only like a one point two. Like literally, they walked back from a two to one point two. Like the second we said we we're going to test it, and they went, "Oh, okay, that's cool." Either way, like what what assets did you use? And they went, "We we'll use this and this and this." And we went, "Huh?" Like like it, it was a currency thing. And it's like, well, like why didn't you use the yen? And it's like, like, oh, it's like, like why didn't you use those ones? And they said, "Oh, they're the most liquid." And it's like, I don't know. You got Canada in there, and you don't have the yen. Like that seems weird that you're missing. That. So of course, we tested on all fourteen currency pairs that we had. And at the end of the day, we went, they chose the eight that worked and got rid of the six that didn't because like they're trying to create a backtest and like so the, the one point two came down to a point six and then we went okay so and what like what parameters did you use and what time and, and you just start to like, like literally this thing that was presented to too I think I think when we first went like we think like it's legitimately like a point four but then we went okay there was actually a bit of an idea in there at a point four and then we kind of went like how can we like you know turn it into something else but like it was a like 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 the the fact is um, there's a lot of decisions that you can make that you wouldn't have known to make at the time. And, and, and those can artificially inflate your back test and, and they can result in a worse process going forward. And so um, like you have to make sure that, that, that there's a proper alignment to make sure, you know, that, that to, to, to reduce the probability of that. I will just add, because you mentioned that to be, to be successful at making money in asset management, you either have to be first, uh, you have to be smart or you can cheat. And I think those were that's exactly what uh, in the movie Margin Call um, the, the the character goes on and says before he decides to be first, right? You can be first, you can be smart, or you can cheat. And I think a lot of these major banks are cheating knowingly. Not always, but you can see it. I, I think I think they've gotten and make a better. lot of money doing I, it. I, I think they've gotten better. I think um, like offline, I'll tell you a story about like the East German. Like, so I, I, you know, I rode with the, like, I, I rode a lot when I was, I was younger. And we had, like, the East German national team over and, and coached the Canadian team. And they, and they brought over, um, uh, what was it? That time was a brand new technology of, like, training, like, how to train better. And, like, and, like, and literally, like, like, it was, I have, like, I made gains in my performance that were unbelievable by just changing the way that I trained. Uh, but it was, took two years. And it was huge pushback against it. And I'd say like that's like that's a mixture of smarts and technology. And like once again, the alpha of that disappears over time because like you know, and it turns out Canada was just behind East Germany. Um, now, when you talk about like technology and smarts, of course they were also cheating because like, like he didn't bring his drugs over with him. But like at the end of the day, you know, it's like so we were certainly behind on like a you know because we didn't have a drug program. But like like, like and then that alpha. This is like in the sports, it's exactly the same thing that happens. Is like and 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 like that alpha uh, disappears over time as well because like, like because that technology starts to spread out and then all it does is just raise the playing field and that advantage you have which is i could train better than anyone like i mean like i 
I still like you know I I, I you know I raced at the at the World Duathlon Championships you know, two years ago like it was three years ago now, I don't even know I think time goes by but like like I like and I was like because I had this like technological advantage I knew how to train better I think than almost anyone and uh, and and so um, you know but like like bit by bit it was like I would tell all my friends like oh my god you're training wrong you can do this and like and they all got like ten percent faster. And then all that happens is like, well, now everyone's just faster, and and that, that advantage disappears, and 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 of course, like over time, this advantage disappears, like like the skill reduces, and it becomes more and more of a, of a luck question. And we can talk about you know, there's like that's a totally separate topic, but like, um, but that is technology, intelligence, dedication, and and then like, and like what Canada didn't have at the time, I, I'm going to guess like still uh, is the, is is the, is the cheat. So. Yeah. Uh, which, 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 when I, and this is like the, like the, the circle of like when I raced at the duathlon world championships, I came second and, um, wow. and, uh, and so I was like, I was pretty excited. Cause I was like, I was like, like I was, I was like, it was, it was a good outcome. Uh, but hold on a second. Like, this is triathlon world champion two years ago, three, three years ago, duathlon, uh, masters, masters world. Oh, fuck. okay. Different. I'm Sorry. like, that's some good so, tech world, world championships. Uh, yeah. Like masters. <laughs> Sorry. So, All right. so I Thank raced God. in it. Um, I was gonna about to uh, go back and shoot myself yeah. in the face. Did, did came, came second. Was super excited. I was gonna like was gonna train. Like I, I like like when I first left teachers. Like well, I got this year off. Or I have to take the year off. I was like I'm gonna train for this thing. I gotta go. I wanna go win it next year. And uh, and then in, like so the race was in it was in Denmark in June. Um, and and like in September I got an email going like 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 like, hey Chris, the the, the guy who won your race failed his drug test. He's been disqualified, <laughs> and you're now the world champion. And so, and I went like I ignored it because I thought it was like a bullshit letter. He goes, send us your send us your medal. We'll send you like like. And, and so I ignored it. Two weeks later, like, hey, just so you know, like like. And so they, and they, it was exactly they had like a two page spread on him and like and like it was DNF. And he was he was just qualified. And so and so then I so I was like then I was like world champion. I was like okay, I never want to do this again. So I'm done. So that was, <laughs> that was yeah, good like, for you. That was awesome. That's amazing. That's why. Uh, and so that, that's, could, that's you, you probably you know, missed some good sponsorship opportunities because well, now I'm like. Turn- 25 pounds heavier and, and, uh, and, and starting a hedge fund. In muscle? That, uh, uh, no. Because you, you've, you've reverse engineered <laughs> the weight training program? There's no weight training. Uh, so. I wonder, so. it, would have there been any um, sort of like accolades or sponsorship available to you for having won that if you were at the time number one? Because I know that's a big issue with Olympians. Masters, masters duathlon. The key, the key in this world is to find an obscure <laughs> sport and race the other forty-five year olds. <laughs> so, uh, short answer: I don't You're think so. Uh, log, log answer: uh, I, I would be happy to sponsor people in this sport. Like, there's the young kids who are getting out there trying to get going. Like, the last thing I need is sponsorship. Like, uh, you know, it's like, like you got to go find the kid who's like sixteen and get up and running. It, it, yeah, it's just a, a big issue. A big issue on the, with the Olympians are those that come in second, and then like a year later, they say, "Well, we found that this guy was doped up, so you get the medal." But all the sponsorship and all the accolades, all the travel around the world, all the things that life path is gone. So you look—you could have been—you could have been a famous duathlete. Turns out there wasn't. Literally, any. you know. Yeah, this is like, uh, yeah, no, it's like, look, uh, I—it uh, was one of those things. Did it? Liked it. Probably never want to do it again. Moved, moved on to the next challenge. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like, uh, you know, anyway, except for bragging two anyway. years later on a, speaks, uh, on a podcast. Speaks to I'm your not character. Sure much to be speaks to your character. <laughs> Good job. I, I, well, should we release think, poor Corey yeah. here? He's, he's been a gracious <laughs> co-host. We've been holding him hostage. This for, has been fantastic. I got to tell you, I was, I was super excited for this one. I don't know how oh, I wormed my way into co-host, but I'm very happy to be here.
Oh, I love it. Like, oh, two and a half hours. Like, 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 do you guys, like, I cannot believe there's anyone still watching, but like, I, I feel very sad if they are. But like, that's a lock on your Friday night. That's all good. They'll listen to it later, five <laughs> exactly. times, as it tends to happen. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Well, Chris, man. Corey, thank you so good. much for yeah. for joining us. This was yeah, absolutely thanks, all that we expected. So have good. a great weekend. Fantastic. And I think I told all my stories. So it's like <laughs> no no chance. <laughs> you wish. All right. All right. Well, good good okay. having you guys on. Thanks, thanks Corey. Thanks, Chris. Like have an awesome and weekend. yeah, like and follow. Yeah. By the way, guys, if uh, no, you no investment content, advice. No investment right. advice. All right. All right. Cue right, music. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again. And see you next time.